Song called 56K. I always have trouble with the sound right at the beginning here. 56K by a guy named Ronald Jenkins. I thought it was funny. You have to have been a online computer user in the 90s to appreciate this. Or earlier. I mean, I go all the way back to the mid-80s online. But this was referring to the days of the 56K modems, which is the way you'd get online. A lot different than today, where you just connect wirelessly to a fast connection somewhere. Here you would actually dial in through a phone line to a service to get on the internet. And before that, you would actually dial directly into somebody else's computer to communicate with people online. That's the way I did it since the mid-80s, until the internet revolution happened. The internet actually existed in some form since before I was born, since the late 1960s, but it really wasn't used by the masses until the mid-90s, and then it just took off from there. So I thought it was a funny song. Someone posted it on the Poker Fraudler forum, so 
I played it tonight for the opening of this show. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, the Druff and Friend show. I am Todd Dan Druff with Tellus, and this is the first show of the 2014 World Series of Poker. World Series has started. Some people have already played and busted out from it. I have a side bet going on against two very famous players winning a bracelet, as do several people on Poker Fraud Alert. We're going to talk about that tonight. And I'm going to be playing in the World Series of Poker myself just three days from today. So a lot to talk about regarding the World Series of Poker. And in the chat room, which, by the way, you can find by going to the near top of the screen of PokerFraudAlert.com and clicking on the chat button, you have to have a registered account here on the forum to be able to chat there or even read it. You also need a flash-enabled device, meaning you cannot go in the chat room if you have an iPhone or an iPad. But anyway, in the chat room, Brown 83 is asking a question. Last year, you talked about never playing the World Series of Poker again because of the anxiety it caused. What are you doing differently this year to prevent that? I knew somebody would ask that question. And I have an answer already prepared to that question, which I will discuss a little bit later tonight. Not too much later, because it's going to be one of our first topics. Let me get all the stuff out of the way that we always do at the beginning here. First of all, we have a free roll tonight, but I messed up. I messed up because I had the date of the free roll wrong in the system. The date was erroneously set to June 2nd, so anybody who registered for the free roll earlier was registered for a free roll on June 2nd. So that was incorrect. I had to take down the free roll and restart it. So it is now running with the correct date of May 28th, but you have to re-register. And to give people additional time, you have until 7.30. The free roll usually starts at 7.10 Pacific time. Tonight it's 7.30 because I had to do that. So you still have half an hour to get over there. The good news is we have $100 to give away tonight. We started out with very little, but... We gained as we got closer to the show, thanks to the generosity of various people. We already had $15 from Chris P200 and Bubbles, $7.50 from him. But C-Money, who has been our most generous contributor over the years, gave 50 bucks, And Dirty Ernie gave $27.50 to make it an even $100. So this is the way the prizes break down. First is $50.00. Second, $28. Third, $15. Fourth, $7. That's 50, 28, 15, and 7. Those will be the prizes today for the free roll. It's No Limit Hold'em. It takes place on the No Fraud Online Poker Room tonight at 7.30 Pacific Time. You can find the No Fraud Online Poker Room near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. You need a separate account to play there, but it's totally free. You don't even need play chips to play the tournament, just... Register and go. Just make sure do not register later than 7.30 or you won't get in. To qualify for the free money, you need a registered account on Poker Fraud Alert pretty much within the last year, June 1st, 2013, or before. If you have a registered account on PokerFraudAlert.com's forum, I'm talking about the forum part, 
that is dated June 1st or later, or if you don't have an account at all, you need to email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, exactly as it sounds, all lowercase, and convince me you've been listening to this show for at least three weeks. You can convince me of this by telling me things you have heard on the show that were not specifically in the show description for the last three weeks. If I believe you, then I will give you an exception that lasts for as long as you are a member in good standing of PokerFraudAlert.com that allows you to win the free money regardless of your registration date. You have to do this before tonight's free roll begins or otherwise you'll have to wait till next week. Don't win it first and then email me later or otherwise you will not qualify. I'm doing this, of course, to prevent people from just using the free roll as a way to get free money but otherwise having no interest in this site or this show. Speaking of the site, I would like to encourage anyone who doesn't post on the Poker Fraud Alert forums, please post here. Uh, you know, over time, we lose people because they just lose interest in forums or get too busy or whatever. I mean, that happens on every forum. But you need new people to replace the old ones that leave. And we haven't gotten that many new people posting. And I know some people are kind of intimidated by the environment on the forum that gets the most posts, which is called Flying Stupidity. And, you know, I know there's some trolling that goes on there and stuff like that. But if you don't want to deal with that stuff, it's very easy. You can post in the other areas on our forum. The poker community discussion, scam scandals and shadiness, poker and blackjack strategy sections. All those forums on PokerForAllAlert.com, I don't allow any kind of trolling or basic negativity there. So... If you want to take part in serious discussions and are afraid to because of the environment on the flying stupidity part of our forum, then just post on those other forums, and you won't have to worry about that stuff. But I would like to see new people posting. So just want to put that out there. Anyway, World Series of Poker, it has begun. It began, it began yesterday, May 27th. 2014, of course, today being May 28th, 2014. It will continue through the middle of July when, once again, they will pause when they get to the final table of the main event, which is event number 65, and wait a few months before playing out that final table. Something I always thought was stupid, but that's what they're doing. I am playing, I believe, eight or nine events. I may add one or two at my discretion. I may not play certain events if they are interfered with by events where I make it deep. Or I won't play certain events if I'm not feeling up to it, if I feel sick, if I feel tired, if I feel depressed, whatever. I mean, this stuff doesn't happen easily to me where I don't feel up to playing. But you know, a few years ago, for example, I missed the 10K limit event, which I really wanted to play because I was really sick. So it can happen. I have sold pieces of myself to a number of people on PokerFraudAlert.com, so I know a lot of you are really following along with me carefully as to how I do in these events, but we'll talk about that shortly. Let me give you the agenda tonight, and then we'll get right into talking about the World Series of Poker. Before I do that, here are the ways to get a hold of me. There's something new this week that I didn't put on the thread about this show, but it's important if you want to text me, because if you've been texting me at our Main number, I have bad news for you that I'm not receiving the text because the texts don't work on that number anymore. I've changed phone numbers. 
I was forced into it. I won't explain why, but uh, I was forced into it. So here's our new text number. Let me get that out of the way first. You want to text me. Do not call this number. Just text me on it. 702-623-1423. Once again, 702-623-1423. That is my text-only phone number that you can text at any time, including during the show. And I will read your texts on the show unless you specifically ask me not to. If you want to call, the phone number is, of course, the same, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Do not text me on that number anymore. I will not receive it. 775-FRAUD-55. Make sure to show your caller ID when you call me, or your call will not get through. Of course, we have the Mount Charleston line. That's an old 70s telephone that sits high atop Mount Charleston, Mount Charleston, Mount Charleston, which is a mountain that hangs over Las Vegas. There's an old 70s rotary phone that's sitting up there that is forwarding to wherever I am. That number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808. Some people don't believe about the Mount Charleston line. They think I'm making this up, but go ahead and look it up. You'll see that this is a Mount Charleston phone number. 702-430-1808 and it will forward to wherever I am, but don't text that number either because 70s rotary telephones cannot take text messages. You can also talk to me in the chat room, though admittedly I will not be reading the chat room all that actively because I'm doing a show and it's hard to read a chat room and do a show at the same time, but I'll glance at it every so often. I think texting is the best way to get a hold of me if you're just wanting to get like a message across to me, and if you want to have a conversation, you can call the two numbers I gave you. A lot of ways to get a hold of me here on PokerFraudAlert.com. See, I got my first text already from the 815 area code, the boner guy. He says, I've got a boner. So there we go. It's already gotten through. So, all right. Here's the agenda tonight. The World Series of Poker is beginning. I'm playing my first event on Saturday, The Millionaire Maker. I will talk all about my plans for the World Series and what I plan to do differently this year because last year, at the very end of the World Series, I had a meltdown. I'll remind you guys about the meltdown I had and how I am going to change things to avoid the same meltdown. I'll also tell you my goals for this year's World Series. Also, Daniel Negreanu and Phil Ivey will likely be playing a lot of World Series events this year, as they usually do. Of course, both of them have multiple World Series bracelets, but I am foolhardy enough to bet against them winning a bracelet. That is, I'm betting against either of them winning a bracelet. If either of them wins a bracelet in 2014, I lose, as do several members of PokerFraudAlert.com who joined in this bet. So I will talk about this bet that we have that is booked, and I will give you my mathematical analysis as to why I feel we have the best of it. That doesn't mean we're going to win, but I think that we have a greater than 50% chance to win this even money bet, which I think, which not I think, but which means we have the best of it if my calculations are right. 
Well, we've had Asian Spa on this show before. Most recently, he appeared on another radio show on April 1st that called into this show. But Asian Spa has committed suicide. Yeah, Asian Spa is gone. Now, before you get too depressed, the man behind Asian Spa, to my knowledge, is still alive. But the account is dead, and the persona is dead, and I don't think either are ever coming back. So if you liked Asian Spa, which I did very much, he's gone. He's no longer. He's, he's done. We'll talk a little bit about that and what happened there. No, I'm not going to out who he is. Daniel Negranu, you know, the guy I'm betting with regarding winning a bracelet. He is a very, very big supporter of Choice Center Las Vegas, which is a group that supposedly helps you improve your life. It's kind of a seminar, but it's more than that. Many have accused them of being a cult. Some people who are involved with it swear by it and think it's the most wonderful thing ever and it changes lives for the better. Well, I've talked about that before on this show. I'm not going to go into my whole discussion about Choice Center again, but because Daniel's been extolling the virtues of it so much recently and in fact been linking Choice Center to his recent success and because Seriously Serious did an interview with Brian Rast who went to a week of Choice Center and gave his opinion on it I think it's worth talking about again as we come into the World Series with several prominent players being members of Choice Center Daniel Svetkov, the snitch who helped lead to Black Friday, former major payment processor of poker stars Full Tilt and Absolute Poker, a guy who I'm pretty sure has processed at least one check for you. And when I say you, I really mean you, the listener. If you have played online poker any time prior to 2011, or I should say from, you know, 2008 to 2011 or so. Despite all the payment processing he did, despite the $100 million that he stole, he's probably going to get a very short prison sentence? What? There's no justice in this world. We'll talk about what happened with this guy. The LA Times had an article about legalization of poker in California and that article is predicting that online poker will soon be legalized in California that doesn't mean we'll be playing anytime soon but it means that it will be legalized soon and then the whole setup process to getting it going will follow and pretty soon after that we'll have playable online poker in California this would be a great thing I will give my opinion on the situation, and we'll also talk about whether poker stars will be included in the entire equation. Poker Fraud Alert 
is going to have some gear coming out very soon. We're going to have hats and T-shirts. I have a design that nobody has seen yet. I asked for volunteers to design the T-shirts and hats for Poker Fraud Alert, and we got some pretty decent submissions. But uh, somebody contacted me privately and sent me his submission for this. And this is someone who actually does it professionally. And I really liked what this guy did. I really thought he did a great job. So I said, okay, yours is the winner. And you guys will see the design. I think you're going to like it. And I'm going to be getting hats made. I'm going to be getting t-shirts made. And I'm not going to charge anyone for them. They will be given away to posters on the forum, to listeners of this show, and just to people that I see at the World Series or whatever. So, even though this will cost me real money to have them made, I'm not looking to profit or even break even on this stuff. I'll just be happy if you want one and if you want to wear it. And I don't expect people to see that and say, oh wow, Poker Fraudler, wow, i got to come there and then make all kinds of money that way. I, I'm really just uh, giving these away as a service to the listeners and posters here on Poker Fraud Alert that have supported this show and this site with their listenership and or participation all these years. There's nothing more than that. Finally, an editorial. Not about poker at all. Not about gambling at all. Everybody has heard by now about the tragedy that occurred at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where a student named Elliot Roger murdered six people and injured 13 others. He did this because girls were rejecting him, because he resented other guys for getting the girls he wanted. He was just very frustrated with his place in life, and he wanted to kill people for it. Obviously very crazy guy. But I think I have a little different perspective on this whole thing, or at least some additional perspective, because I was there, not at the shooting, not in the town where this occurred, which is called Isla Vista. It's a college town right next to UC Santa Barbara. But because I was there at that school and living in that little town in the early 1990s, I was there. Occasionally I go back and visit because it's kind of an interesting place just to kind of see how it's changed. The mother of my son went to that school and lived in that town. That's where I met her. And while I don't agree at all with not just what this guy did, obviously, but also how he felt about everything... I can see how he got there, given that I lived there and I saw the environment of that place. So my my editorial is about the fact that UC Santa Barbara was not a good place for a guy like Elliot Roger, and this is the second time something like this has happened there. It's just this one is more sensational because it had those videos and the manifesto accompanying it. So we'll talk about, or I will talk about my perspective and how, while this is shocking 
it's also not as surprising to me as it might be to some of you that this has happened at that particular school. So, taking a look at the chat room, that's why I'm pausing. (laughs) I'm being asked in the chat room, what about golf shirts? I mean, I guess we could get golf shirts. I'm willing to discuss with everybody specifically what we order as far as the shirts go. Like, I'll do what everybody wants. This isn't just my decision, even though I'm paying for it. I want people to like whatever is printed. By the way, the free rolls in 11 minutes, so get over there. So, let me get to our first topic here. The World Series of Poker. The World Series of Poker, which consists of 65 events, began yesterday with what is usually the first event, the Casino Employees event. Last year, the Casino Employees event was won by Chad Holloway, who's a big reporter on PokerNews.com. Chad actually wrote an article about me late last year. I thought he did a very good job with that. And I like Chad. I was hoping he'd do well again this year, but he didn't repeat. He busted fairly early. But anyway, the Casino Employees event was the first one to go. But then the second event was an open event, meaning anyone could play it, though you did have to have $25,000 available to play it. That was the $25,000 Mixed Max No Limit Hold'em, which is where you start out as a nine-handed table, and then as the event moves on, it moves to six-handed and then heads up. So $25,000 entry fee for that one. Not entry fee, but uh, that's the buy-in. And it goes on from there. Today's the second day of the World Series. Today there were some more affordable events than the 25K that the general public could play, including PLO, which got over 1,000 people, set a record for a non-Hold'em event. I'll be playing my first event on Saturday, which is going to be a zoo. Last year it had, I think, 6,300 people or something obscene like that. It was by far the biggest non-main event field that they ever had at any live tournament. Let me look up the exact numbers here. Let's see. I think it was 6,300. Let's see what that was. I'm talking about the Millionaire Maker event. And... Yeah, 6,343 people. And the top prize, which was a guaranteed million, and is again this year. That's why it's called the Millionaire Maker was almost 1.2 million, and it was won by a guy named Benny Chen that I've never heard of before. And that's pretty damn good for a $1,500 buy-in. 1.2 million. So the guarantee on this Millionaire Maker event, which this year is event number eight, taking place on Saturday, is... One million dollars. And this was really a brilliant marketing move on the part of Caesars 
you know, I criticize Caesars a lot, but I'll give them credit where it's due. They do a great job marketing the World Series. That's why year after year, even with poker in decline, the World Series keeps getting huge numbers. And this was a great invention where they guarantee a million bucks, and this brought a lot of people out of the woodwork to play the World Series. Not so much the pros, but this one really excited the amateurs, the people who like poker but just weren't quite motivated enough to go spend 1500 bucks or even 1000 bucks on the World Series. Here, they go, wow, a million-dollar guaranteed first prize. Not a million-dollar guaranteed prize pool, but a million-dollar guaranteed first prize for just a $1,500 investment. Wow, they think. So this drew 6,343 people. Pretty amazing. Now, last year it was a logistical nightmare, which I fortunately avoided because I saw it coming, and I made sure to buy in well in advance and not be stuck on the horrendous lines that occurred on the day of the event. It's also weird in that it has two starting flights, but they're on the same day. So Event 8A begins at 11 a.m., and then 8B, which is like a second starting day, begins on the same day at 4 p.m. I don't know why they don't make it the next day, but this 4 p.m. crap, they did this last year too, created all kinds of problems there at the World Series, especially for satellites and deep stack events and other non-World Series events that were scheduled to run on that day. First they were delayed, then they were delayed again, then they were ultimately canceled with people sitting around twiddling their thumbs for hours waiting for their event to start only to find out, sorry guys, we're canceling it. I would have been furious if I was one of those people. Also, they didn't have enough cashier spaces open and uh, the lines to register for both 8A and 8B, I heard, were up to six hours long. So that was pretty awful too. Again, didn't affect me personally, but uh, the only way I was affected personally was that people kept approaching our table who had like a, a satellite that was scheduled at that table and were all confused and it kept interrupting the table. But yeah, that's not much, that's not a big deal. It is a big deal when you show up for like a four o'clock satellite, you're told, okay, sorry, we're starting at five now. You wait till five. Sorry, we're starting at six now. You wait till six. Sorry, we're starting at 7 now, and then you hear, oh, sorry, now we're canceling it. I mean, think how furious you'd be. And these people didn't get anything back except their money back, which, of course, they had to get by law. But anyway, I'm playing that event. I cashed in it last year. It was the first year of the event. I cashed in it. And, you know, whenever I bust out of an event, which I have done every time except the one I won nine years ago, every other World Series event I've played, I've busted out at some point. When I bust out of an event, I'm never happy about it, but my mood after I'm busting out depends a lot upon if I felt that I made the most of the cards I was dealt. I'll give you an example. In 2010, I finished 88th in the main event out of 7,319 people. Was I disappointed that I wasn't going to the final table of the main event when I got so close? Yeah. Was I dreaming at one point of being the $9 million winner and getting another million from poker stars? 
who had just sponsored me. Yeah, I was disappointed. But was I mad? Was I depressed? No. Because that year I took what was really mediocre cards and skated through six days without busting. Now, sure, I had some luck in that I never got into a bad spot, never ran into any coolers or bad beats that robbed me of all or most of my chips, and that in the critical races, I won. So, of course, in that way, I had good luck. But I was never, I never had a dominant stack. I was never running over the table. I was never winning hand after hand. I was really taking a short sack and riding it for six days. And I was very proud of what I did with it. I felt I stretched that short stack about as far as it could be stretched. So when I went out 88th place, I said, all right, I did the best I could have done with the cards I got. And I was proud of it rather than pissed off at myself. There's been other times, though, when I've been out and I've been pissed off at myself or I've been really frustrated just because of something that was really bad luck that robbed me of a very promising-looking situation. At the 2010 main event, it was never looking promising because I was always short-stacked. I just kept surviving. But another example of one where I was proud of myself was last year's Millionaire Maker. Now, I didn't cash for very much. I didn't min-cash, but I came very close to min-cashing. I I was like min-cash plus 600 bucks or something. I think I cashed 3000 and something on the $1,500 buy-in. It's better than losing, but it's not anything to get excited about. But the reason I was proud of this was that I really was not winning any kind of sizable pot the entire way. I really had nothing. I was kind of blind-stealing at opportune times, making sure not to shoot off my chips. I was just... I just took basically nothing and skated into a min-cash, which isn't my goal. My goal is not to min-cash. So I know there's going to be people criticizing me, saying, oh, you played like a nit, and you min-cash, and you're all proud of it. That's not what I'm saying. I wasn't playing like a nit, is my point. I wasn't playing like a maniac by any means, but I I was picking the right spots to get chips here and there because I could not win a single big pot in that damn thing, or even medium-sized pot. So I just stretched it out into a min-cash, which, you know, given some luck after I cashed, could have become a lot more. So I was proud of that one. I, I thought that uh, to outlast well over 90% of the field with the cards I got was pretty damn good. Um, last year when I made fifth at the, 10, at the 5K limit hold'em, I was very proud of my play on days one and two. At day three, I, the last day, I just... I started off with really bad cards and bad luck, and then I, it just kind of shook me, and I never really got over it. I didn't play my best on day three. I didn't make any egregious mistakes. I made one excellent laydown on the river that even surprised David Baker, my biggest critic in the announcer's booth. But um, I wasn't playing my best at that final table. On that whole day. I I just kind of got off to a bad start. And it shook me a little bit. And I could never quite get in sync again. 
I, I don't think it would have mattered. I just didn't. I just took too many beats and too many coolers that day to really do better than fifth. But uh, I, I didn't. I wasn't really ashamed of my play, but I knew I could have done better. And I was doing better the previous two days. I was also running better, but I was also playing better. So that one has kind of stuck with me since then. The main event last year. Talk about the main event. When I was done with the main event in 2013, I decided that was my last tournament. I decided that was it. There would be no 2014 World Series for me. At one point, I was getting worried that maybe I was having such a bad reaction to losing that I was going to have a heart attack. I'm not even kidding. For those of you that did not hear the broadcast after I busted from the main event about ten and a half months ago, what happened was I played very well at the main event. And as you've heard, you know, I'm not someone who always brags about playing well. You know, sometimes I play well, sometimes I play okay, sometimes I, I don't play well at all. But the main event I felt I played really well all the way up until the final hand that busted me. And I felt I played well in that there were so many circumstances where I either saved a ton of chips or prevented busting from smart laydowns. And I had people criticizing me, how can you brag about folding? You know, who brags about folding? Folding doesn't win you tournaments. Yes, it does, because folding gives you opportunities to win more chips later. But I really avoided so many situations that so many people would have put their chips in and either lost a lot of them or busted. So many. There were so many times I could patting myself on the back when I found out what my opponents had and that I did not put in many or any chips and give, give them action. There are other times where I put my chips on the line when I sensed my opponents were weak and I was right. Basically, I was making mostly all the right moves there. Again, I wasn't being a nit. I wasn't playing with scared money. I just wasn't wasting my chips. And again, with cards that were not that great, I looked like I was going to cash. And this was after two consecutive years where I got close to cashing, 2011, 2012, but did not. Both of those previous years, I made it between 83 and 87% of the field being gone and busted before the magic number of 90% and did not cash. Late day three both times. Well, here I was again on a late day three. And I had ace-king. I was below average stacked, but not desperately short. But on the shorter side. But not so short where ace-king is like an automatic shove. A guy in early position raised, who I had been seeing doing a lot of raising. He was a big stack. He did a lot of raising from any position. It was a European guy. But he would fold if you came over the top on him. Another guy flatted, who was fairly new to the table, in middle position. And it came to me. 
And I had Ace King. So I thought about it. And I said, well, if I re-raise here, there's a fair chance that the under-the-gun guy is going to call. I figured the flatter was going to probably fold. But there's a fair chance that the under-the-gun guy is going to call. And then I don't have enough chips to continuation bet it if I miss and then be able to fold. Or if I do, I'll be crippling myself. And while he does fold sometimes to re-raises, I also saw him call a lot of them and then see what he flops. You're just you know, your typical European guy with a big stack who's willing to play semi-loose. Not a bad player at all, a pretty good player. In fact, that was one problem with this table. Everyone was good. So, of course, there was a possibility that the under-the-gun raiser could have really had a hand. But I said, I, I have ace-king. You know, anything against kings or aces, anything but kings or aces, I've got a decent shot to win. So I said, all right, I'm just going to shove and just expect them both to fold and pick up some pick up some chips. So we already have a preflop raise and a flat. We have the blinds and the annies. I mean, I'd, I'd get plenty of chips from this. I'd be very happy to see fold, fold. That's what I wanted. So I said, all in. First guy, under the gun guy, thinks, hmm, and folds pretty quickly. Internally, I breathe a sigh of relief. Yes, I got it. Obviously, this flatter in the middle is going to fold. Instantly says, I call. I cannot tell you how much my heart sank there. You, you know what he had. You know what he had. He had the very worst hand to be up against when you have ace-king. The only hand that devastates you. Of course, aces. So, that was that. I didn't get the 5% (laughs) that would uh, have saved me there, and I busted. Well, right then, I was just in shock. Not so much in shock that this could have happened. Like, you know, people flat with aces, they're in hope that exactly this occurs and that, you know, this guy just happened to fall in the exact right position and perfect spot for me to have ace-king. I mean, it worked out perfectly for the aces guy. Uh, It's not shocking that that could have occurred, but I was in shock in that I had been playing so well for three straight days to get to where I was, and just in one shot, I I semi-recklessly threw it all away. I didn't have to do it that way. And immediately I thought, oh my god, I I should have just re-raised, then the aces would have shoved, then I would have folded, and I would have still had plenty of chips to play with. And I couldn't believe it was just over. It was gone. All this hard work was in the toilet. I don't get a damn thing. I might as well have been the first guy to have busted out. And I've had more disappointing situations than that, but it was it was really, really, really frustrating. And I stood up very slowly. And uh, then it turned out, uh, actually, I don't think I was gone. That's right. I wasn't gone. I had to endure the extra torture of the fact that the guy with the aces had a tiny bit fewer chips than I did. So I was about to leave, and they said, well, 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 come back. You might still be alive. And it turned out I had, like, the tiniest bit more than he did, and I had to wait around for, like, one more hand to to go all in with anything and bust. 
So I had to endure that torture as well, to count down all the chips. I, I couldn't even just leave with dignity. So then when I busted in the next hand with like almost no chips, first thing I did was walk over to a guy a few seats away who I had made a laydown against about an hour before, and I wasn't sure if it was a good laydown. And I asked him, what do you have that hand? And he told me what it, what he had, and it turned out I made a good laydown. And he wasn't just being nice. I mean, what he said made perfect sense for what that hand was, and I, you know, I'm 100% sure he was telling me the truth. And, in fact, he criticized himself and said, I played it bad. I, I let you get away too cheap, he said. So I thought, oh, great. <laughs> The only hand recently I was questioning whether I made the right move, and I I made the right move. So I walk away, very disappointed, very frustrated with myself. And then I I get this weird feeling, like that I can't walk, like that I can't even stand. I'm physically unable to walk away or stand. So I, I stumble over to an empty table and sit there. And I'm sitting there, and I'm starting to have trouble even seeing I'm getting nauseous, having trouble breathing. I've never had this happen before, ever in poker. I've had much more disappointing moments than this, but for some reason, this is the one that was just killing me. And I'm trying to reason with myself. Look, this isn't the worst poker moment I've had. I've had other ones that are much more frustrating and much more meaningful, money-wise and prestige-wise, than this. Stop doing this to yourself because I knew all the physical reactions I was getting were all in my head. I knew my my own body was doing this to me. And I'm trying to tell myself, stop it. Get over this. But I couldn't. It was was getting worse and worse. Then security approached me and said, you're not allowed to sit at these tables in the tournament area, even if they're empty. I didn't want to tell them how I was feeling because I was afraid they're going to go try to take me away in an ambulance or some BS like that. I, I didn't want that to happen at this point. So I said, okay, I I forced myself up and I stumbled out to the hallway and I I could not take another step. I saw a table that was used for one of the vendors on the, in the hallway that was empty because the vendor had closed for the night. And I sat down there and put my head down. My heart was beating fast. I couldn't see straight. Literally. I was getting really hot and sweaty I felt like my body was betraying me and that I was going to stress myself into some kind of heart attack here. And I was having to make a decision whether I call out to someone to go get security and have them bring me to a hospital. And I couldn't believe this was happening all because of Busting out with perhaps over-aggressively playing ace-king. And it wasn't even a terrible play. I'm convinced I I probably made the wrong play, but it wasn't awful. So I'm sitting there, and... um, Then my dad tries to call me. I I don't want to take his call. And I'm just like sitting there, sitting there. And finally, after about 15 minutes with my head down... I start to feel better. I start to feel like everything's passing. I start to feel like I'm all all kind of like cooling off, literally. And uh, I I realized that I don't need to call anyone for help. And I was able to stand up and walk back to my 
my room. But uh, I said, wow. I, I don't think I can take this anymore. I'm not going to quit poker, but I think I'm going to quit tournament poker. I don't think I'm, I, I don't think I'm cut out emotionally anymore for tournament poker. And then I thought about it and said, well, okay, maybe I just won't play the main event or I won't play any event that's going to take several days where I don't even cash. And then I thought about it again and said, you know what? I just was approaching this the wrong way. The problem was I was too proud of what I had accomplished when I had not accomplished anything yet. Almost like in baseball, a pitcher who is uh, shut out the other team for six innings, but his team is still tied 0-0, and he's patting himself on the back for the great job he's done and feels like he's won already. And then he goes out the next inning and gives up six runs. I learned you don't get all excited And you don't put a lot of emotional investment into a tournament when you haven't won anything yet. You can be happy. You can start to dream a little bit about where you might go. But the problem was, all I was doing there was patting myself on the back with how many lives I gave myself in this tournament. How great my laydowns were. When I should have just said, look, I'm glad I made the right moves here, but until I get to the point where I cash, this means nothing. It's totally meaningless. I'm not emotionally invested. It's very possible that I still won't make it because of some unfortunate cooler, bad beat, or bad play situation. Also, One reason I would not be able to stand tournament poker for a living is that there's just too much variance and too much stress, and that's why I only do it once a year now at the World Series. But because of that, when I don't succeed in certain events, or I don't succeed as much as I would like to, then I start to take it personally. I start to feel like I failed. Even when I finished fifth last year at the 5K limit hold'em, I felt kind of like I failed. But I need to have a different approach. I need to have the approach of, look, I'm playing eight or nine tournaments. I could easily brick all eight or nine of them, and that's just the way variance goes. 10% of the people cash. A lot of these are very card-dependent. Even the greatest player can easily go 0 for 8, 0 for 9. So, of course I go in hoping to do well, but I have to go in accepting the fact that I might not and not get all emotional about it. In fact, that's part of the reason I sell pieces of myself is to bring down the variance. So, 
So last year I cared too much. This year I'm still going to care, but not as much. I'm not going to tie as much of my inner self to my results here. If I do well, great. I'm going to try my hardest, my best to do well. I'm going to try not to make stupid moves or bad decisions. I'm going to try to think about everything I do, reason it out. I'm going to try not to tilt or let emotion mess with my game. But I'm going to try to put out of my mind how much I care and try to care less. But I think the biggest thing is to not obsess over how well I've played thus far when I haven't won anything yet. I think that was my biggest mistake last year. It was the shock of realizing I'm getting nothing for everything I had already accomplished, when in reality I had accomplished nothing. Spew artist saying that my ace-king was the most standard shove ever. It wasn't the most standard shove because I had enough chips to where it wasn't an automatic shove. And I still think while it's understanding, understandable to have shoved there and not terrible, it was just, uh, I, I still think that wasn't totally the right move. But at the same time, it wasn't some awful thing where I'm like slapping my head going, oh my God, how could I have done that? Like it wasn't, like when I thought about it afterwards, I'm like, it wasn't, Right, in my opinion, but it wasn't that wrong. Someone suggesting I go to Choice Center, <laughs> which we'll talk about later in the show. Yeah, I, bet Cho- I bet Choice Center would have a field day with that story. I bet they, they'd pick me apart big time and uh, tell me how much I need them. I don't remember how many big blinds I had. You can go find the thread. I wrote a thread all about this. Hotshot74 saying in the chat I should call uh, Hasib Qureshi, a.k.a. Dog His Head, and he can give me life coaching. <laughs> I mean, maybe I should. He's, he's uh, on the forum now. He's been posting here on Poker Fraud Alert the last few days. So anyway, but I'm back. I think I'm coming in with a better emotional state of mind. And hopefully I can make something of it. Now, what are my goals this year? Last year, I really had two major goals. And believe it or not, neither of them had to do with winning a bracelet, which obviously I wanted to do, but that wasn't one of my two goals. My two goals were, one, to avenge my bubble finish on the 5K Limit Hold'em in 2012, where I lost four straight hands to bubble. And by the way, I played that event fine. I just ran into bad luck. And that one really affected me, too. I didn't break down or anything, but boy, did that affect me. And it carried over to the next year where I'm like, I've got to avenge this. I've got to 
actually cash in that event. So I said, I've got to cash in the 5K limit hold'em in 2013. And I've got to cash in the main event after two years in a row of barely missing it. So I fulfilled one goal, finishing fifth in the 5K limit hold'em. And in fact, having the chip lead with 12 people left going into day three. But I did not complete my goal in the main event by for the third year in a row coming very close to cashing, but not. So, my goals this year. Number one, and this is going to be harder to accomplish, but uh, number one, I'm, I want to win the 10K Limit Hold'em event this year. Not just outdo the fifth, but actually win. I really like the way that event is now. I used to not be that excited about that event. I used to think, well, it's a bunch of really good players. You know, I've got to run so well to beat them all. Not not putting myself down, but the fact that, you know, if I'm with a bunch of really good limit hold'em players, it's, it's not like, you know, I'm going to crush them by my skill. You know, they're really good players too. So I wasn't that excited about that event. But then they made a change. That change was making the beginning of the event meaningful and then slowing down the blinds on the first day. There's only one blind change on the whole first day of the 10K limit hold'em, or at least of the 5K last year. I haven't looked this year for the 10K. But there's only one blind change. You, you play like four hours in a row of one blind level and four, four hours in a row of another blind level, which I thought was great. And these were all meaningful levels. You don't start off with some meaningless crap like you do usually in these limit tournaments where the first hour or two mean nothing. The reason this was so good was, number one, it wasn't meaningless play at the beginning. But, of course, every single player in the event could say that. So why does it help me? It helps me because this makes the play against the donks, the recreational players, the people who are no-limit players that don't really understand limit, this makes the play against the weaker players much more skill-based. The reason I say that is that one criticism of Limit Hold'em tournaments is that they're a run-good contest and that you absolutely have to have cards to win. So if the blinds move up too fast, it just becomes a matter of who catches the best cards. And if the blinds are too small, then, as they used to be at the beginning, then... Even if there are bad players in the field, even if you're beating them out of chips slowly, you're not going to get that much out of it. The ideal situation in a limit event is where you start off right away with meaningful blinds, but they stay low enough to where it's not just a card-catching contest, where everybody has enough chips to where skill really starts to take a lot more effect than card-catching. The weaker players in Limit Hold'em tournaments almost never make it to the end, unlike No Limit. The weaker players in Limit Hold'em have almost no shot. So ideally, when the weaker players are there at the beginning, you want to have hands against them that are meaningful, but the blind's not being too high. And that's what this accomplished. And the reason this helps me the most is where my best talent has always been was 
beating the weak players, understanding the weak players, and knowing how to extract the maximum out of the weak players. It's two different skills with being good against good players and good against bad players. I believe I am one of the best limit hold'em players against bad players that you'll find. Against good players, you're going to find some guys that are better than me. But it's a different skill to be good against bad players. And not everybody's automatically good against bad players. I feel that I'm one of the people who gets the most out of bad players. So with every hand now being meaningful against them, but also being low enough in blinds to be skill-based and not luck-based, I have a very good chance to get off to a good enough start to where I have enough chips to account for some bad variants that might occur later against the good players once the fish are out of the field. Now, I'm not saying that every year I'm going to cash or come close to it. There's many ways that I can go down in flames very early just from running bad. But I think this structure really, really favors my strengths. And it's no coincidence that since they introduced this new structure, in 2012 I bubbled, in 2013 I finished fifth. Some of it was luck, but I can tell you that a lot of it was due to that change. So I want to win this now. In 2005, when I played my first World Series event ever and finished third, and then I went to play my second World Series event ever, and I made day two, I was on the phone with my mom who was telling me, good luck, you know, I I hope you do well, and I said, I'm not going to be happy with this unless I win this one. And she said, oh, no, no, don't think that way. There's too many people left. You know, the chance, you know, I want you to win, but if you're going to be disappointed with anything but a win, you're, you're, you're going to almost surely set yourself up for disappointment. You know, it's, it's such a small percentage that uh, that's going to happen. So, you know, she wasn't trying to put me down, but she was trying to say, you know, be realistic. Don't depress yourself if you don't win this. And I go, look, I'm sorry. I got third last time. I want to win this one. Second's not good enough. I want to win this one. And I came there. And I did. I won that one. Only World Series event I've ever won. But I won it. Nine years ago now. It's been a long time. Played a lot of limited events since and have not won them. But I'm ready to win this one. The 10,000 Limit Hold'em event. I'm not predicting I will. But that's my goal to do so. My second goal is to finally cash in the main event. Now, no, I'm not going to play scared. No, I'm not going to put cashing above running deep. But after three years of getting so close and not quite making it, after last year's meltdown, emotional meltdown I had at the end when I busted, I want to avenge that and cash this year. So those are my two goals. We'll see how I do. If you want to follow how I'm doing in these events, I will be giving very frequent updates. In fact, if you hate people giving chip updates, then you're not going to like my Twitter while I'm playing the World Series. You may want to unfollow me now. 
a lot of people create separate accounts for their chip counts or whatever. And I, I don't want to do that because I want everybody who's following me who may not be aware of the chip. Todd would tell his chip account and ones who may not be reading everything I post on Twitter. I, I want them to be. I don't want them to miss that. I want everybody who wants to read about my chips and my updates to be able to see it easily and know where to go to see it. I've had the same Twitter account for years, so that's where I'm going to post my updates. If you don't like that, then unfollow me and then refollow me when the World Series is over. But I will be giving very frequent updates as I've been doing every year and I want you to feel like you're there with me at the table and experiencing everything I'm experiencing. I'm not going to do it so much that it'll distract from my play. But on the other hand, I'm not going to update something and then wait four hours and give you another update. You'll be getting very frequent updates when I play. And that's for the benefit of the investors That's for the benefit of my family and my friends. That's for the benefit of the people who listen to this show or read my forum that want to see how I'm doing. Also, if you check the MyStack app, it's M-Y-S-T-A-C-K app by Poker News, I will be updating my chips on there. That's uh, where Poker News updates your chips, and you can also update them yourself. And that's what I do pretty frequently as well. So you can see my exact chip count. That's the MyStack app, which I know is available on iPhone and probably on Android, too. Lithuanian technology at its finest. We'll see how much I get covered this year by poker news in general, because, uh, you know, I've had kind of a mixed relationship with poker news over the years. Poker news as an organization, and I'm talking about both the higher-ups and the individual reporters, Uh, it's gone back and forth between liking me and disliking me and kind of thinking neutrally of me. Some of you may remember the infamous unsavory comment that uh, someone with access to the Poker News feed edited in there. I thought the reporter wrote that in, but it turned out it was edited in there later saying the unsavory Todd Wittellas blah, 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 when uh, the main event of the World Series on day six was being reported upon in 2010. But uh, since then, I've uh, I've gotten to know some of the poker news reporters, and I've mended fences, to borrow an Asian spot term, with Robbie Davies, the CEO of Poker News. So... I think Poker News thinks better of me now than they ever have. I can't speak for them, but I I think they do. Maybe they're BSing me and talk shit behind my back, but I I think they're pretty friendly with me now. So hopefully that'll translate into a little more coverage. And I'm not trying to feel entitled and say I deserve a lot of coverage. I'm really only a fringe name when it comes to tournament poker. I don't play that much tournament poker, so you know why should I be covered more than those that do? I shouldn't be. But uh, then again, I'm always happy to get coverage, uh, especially because it gives a little thrill to the people that know me in my personal life that aren't really part of the poker community. 
you know, I'm talking about my family. I'm talking about friends that are not poker players that go read this and go, oh, wow, it's Todd. Wow, they're covering Todd. How oh, cool. I know that guy. Like, that's, that's what I like to see. So we'll see about that. But if they don't cover me, no big deal. Now there's enough ways I can cover myself with the my stack app, with the Twitter. My Twitter account name is very easy. It's Todd Wittellis. Just Todd Wittellis, all one word. Also, we have several people on Poker Fraud Alert that are playing events as well. And if you have an account on Poker Fraud Alert, or even if you don't, you don't even need an account on Poker Fraud Alert, you can post on the Poker Fraud Alert World Series of Poker Forum for each event you play. The way you do that is anytime you tweet, doesn't matter what Twitter account you have, doesn't matter if you follow me or not or whatever, doesn't matter if you have a Poker Fraud Alert account. All you have to do is do hashtag PFA and then the two-digit number of the event. If it's an event from one through nine, then you would do a zero before it. It's like if you're playing event eight on Saturday, you would do PFA, hashtag PFA08. If you're playing event number 27 on June 12th, you do hashtag PFA27. Very easy. And it will automatically appear on the thread for that event on Poker Fraud Alert. However, it will only appear there if I have made a thread for that event, and I'm not going to make 65 threads when most of them are not going to get that done, and it's a waste of my time. So if you are playing an event at the 2014 World Series of Poker, please email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, or post in the 2014 World Series of Poker forum on Poker Fraud Alert, and uh, then I'll create a thread for you so you can tweet, and your tweets will appear there. But uh, you can go to the 2014 World Series of Poker forum and read these particular threads and see not just my tweets with my progress, but everybody else's that tweets with that hashtag. And we already have a number of people on the site that are going to be playing. As I mentioned, I sold pieces of myself for all but two of the events I'm playing. The two I did not sell are the ones I always don't sell. It's the 1500 Limit Hold'em and the main event of the World Series of Poker. Now, don't feel too disappointed about not having a piece of me on the 1500 Limit Hold'em because I have not cashed in that damn thing since I finished third nine years ago. I'm like 0 for 10 or something since then. Really bad. I've just had terrible luck, especially considering that like three or four years in a row, I've had the midday one chip lead in the event and not cashed, including last year, including the year before. I think the year before that as well. I, I get off of these great starts and, and then lose. It's amazing. So I've had 100% of myself in that event every year, and uh, every year I keep losing. <laughs> so It's a good event, too. Just can't win since I finished third that one time. Anyway, I'm playing on May 31st, Saturday, the Millionaire Maker. I have sold 42% of myself of the 8A flight and 40% of myself on the 8B flight, which I won't be playing if I make it through the first few levels of the 8A flight. I sold 40% of myself for the June 2nd, 1500 No Limit Hold'em six-handed event which I've historically done fairly well in when I've played in the past. I sold 40% of myself for the 
$1,500 No Limit Hold'em event on June 21st. I sold 41% of myself for the anti-only No Limit Hold'em on June 23rd. That one I came close to cashing the first year it existed, and second year didn't come very close. Sold 45% of myself for the $10,000 Limit Hold'em event on June 26th, the one that I'm going to really try to win. That's the same as the 5K, just with a double buy-in. And I sold 40% of myself on the 1500 No Limit Hold'em on June 28th. And then, of course, I'm playing the main event where I'm not selling myself. And the 1500 Limit Hold'em where I'm not selling myself either. So those are my events I'm playing this year. Feel free to follow along. And I believe that this show will still be on Tuesday... It's scheduled for Tuesday every single week of the World Series. Unless I make day twos or threes that interfere with that. So keep watching my Twitter and PokerFraudAlert.com for any schedule changes. But there will be a show every week. There was no show last week. Why was there no show last week? Last week I was on vacation. I went to the fine city of Detroit where a lot of PokerFraudAlert forum members are from. And I I actually took a driving tour, a self-guided driving tour, of the ruins of Detroit, the old houses that have been abandoned. There's many, many of them in Detroit. Whole neighborhoods are pretty much abandoned, and the houses are all broken down with holes in them. Old buildings, like an old train station and an old uh, automotive manufacturing plant. Really interesting stuff. So took a look at that over in Detroit. Stayed at Caesars Windsor, which is right across the border in Ontario, Canada. Stayed there. Went on to Niagara Falls for a night. Went on the Maid of the Mist vote. Actually, it wasn't called Maid of the Mist. It was called Hornblower because it was on the Canadian side. But uh, went on that right up to the falls, and that was really interesting. I was very glad we did that. Benjamin was with me, and he really enjoyed that. And, uh, and then we went on to Toronto, and that was my first time in that city. And I learned that uh, it's tough to go out to eat on Sunday night in Toronto because a lot of things in Toronto are closed on Sunday. So I ended up at a pretty crappy place to eat that night. But Toronto was an interesting place, too. I was glad I got to see that. So it was a little five-day trip. Came home on the 26th, two nights ago. And that's why the show is on Wednesday this week instead of Tuesday because Tuesday is one day after we got back and I wanted kind of a day to rest after the vacation. So, that's where I was last week. Almost met up with Bobby Orr from Poker Fraud Alert, but uh, wasn't able to. because We ran out of time. I wasn't in Toronto long enough to do so. But I'll see him this year at the World Series. He's a good guy. So anyway, that's where I was. And uh, about to start the World Series. I'm excited about it. It's always a lot of unknown. I think, what do I have in store for me? Am I going to look back on this and say, wow, this was just days before I I just won something huge? Or is this going to be one of these things where at the end of the summer I'll be going, oh, what a fail. But but either way, as I said, I'm going to take it okay. So... Let's move on to the next topic, 
sure you're tired of my World Series talk already. By the way, if uh, and by the way, beer and poker is asking in chat. He's one of the Detroit guys I was talking about. Why go view that shit in Detroit that is super depressing? Well, because you're from there, so I'm sure it is depressing to you. We don't see this stuff in the West. We don't see this stuff in California or Nevada. You don't see whole neighborhoods that are abandoned with with houses that are burnt out or broken or windows missing, parts of them missing, whole neighborhoods, just ghost towns. You don't see that in the West. So... It was very fascinating for me and very fascinating for Benjamin's mom as well. He said he's from Michigan, not Detroit. Well, you're, still, you're close enough to Detroit. You're a hell of a lot closer than I am. This is just something very interesting coming from the West. I felt that way and, and uh, so did Benjamin's mom. She felt that way too. When I told her we're going to Detroit, she, she was like, ah, Detroit. Like she, she totally wasn't into that. But as soon as we got there and we drove by those houses on the freeway, she said, well, this is really interesting. we got to see this. Anyway, uh, JSTAT wants me to call him this weekend. Uh, you have to send me your phone number again. I don't think I have it. Um, anyway. I'll be at the, mil- the Millionaire Maker this uh, Saturday. If you see me... Feel free to go up to me. Uh, try to tell me pretty quickly that you're a listener of the show and, you know, identify yourself. I, I always think, you know, what if there's some psycho who hates me that's approaching me here? I think I never know. If I don't know who you are and you're approaching me, hey, are you druff? Like, I, I don't know what's coming next. I don't know if it's like, hey, I'm glad to meet you or someone pulling out a knife and stabbing me. Fortunately, the latter's never happened. But, you know, like, I, I never know what to expect. So <laughs> tell me pretty quickly who you are. And uh, But I am glad to meet new people. I always enjoy every year where somebody new comes up to me and says they listen to this show. People I, I've never met before or even heard of before come up and say, hey, I'm a listener to this show. And if you're someone I do know or know of and you listen to this show, please tell me as well. Like, I thought it was cool when Matt Glantz told me two years ago, while we were playing at the World Series, hey, I listen to your show every week. I'm like, oh, cool, Matt Glantz listens. Like, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that as well, that known players listen to this show. So, yeah, if you see me, say hello. And even if I look all intense or I look like I'm in a bad mood or whatever, like, yeah, come up to me anyway. I'm always happy to meet listeners of this show. Jace Dad, I'll, I'll recognize him. I've seen his picture before. So I, I don't think he can scare me. Anyway. Every year I look forward to the World Series, and I, I, I want this to be part of my life. I don't want to quit. I just have to approach it differently. I still have the fantasy, I don't know if it'll really happen, that uh, in 2022, 2022, 2032, that I'll be 60 years old and I'll be playing an event with my son. All right, so let's talk about somebody who probably won't be coming up to anyone at the World Series, and that's Asian Spa. 
Asian spa appeared a few years ago on Twitter and immediately caught a lot of people's attention. He caught their attention because he was anonymous and he called out people in poker that he felt deserved it. It was someone who seemed to have a lot of knowledge about the poker world, a lot of knowledge about Las Vegas. But said a lot of things that a lot of us were thinking but did not say because we didn't want to offend certain people, didn't want to make certain enemies. I mean, I do that to a degree myself. I have a lot of people that dislike me because I call people out, because I give my opinion where it may be unpopular, because I don't kiss ass. But I wasn't even as intense as Asian Spa was, partially because he's anonymous and he doesn't have to face anyone in person. So Asian Spa, who is very careful not to allow his identity to be known, was constantly speaking out about things in poker, and he would find certain people that he was against. Uh, Phil Hellmuth was one of his big targets. Uh, Eventually, he also decided he disliked Zach Hart, the snake in the grass, you know, the former owner of Quad Jacks, and have to agree with him there. Uh, Asian Spa was a listener to my previous radio show that I was involved with and uh, also listened to this show. Asian Spa at one time a few years ago, I think this was in 2010, uh, for some reason was angry at me for something. Not really angry, but uh, he was putting, quote, bad juju hexes on me when I played the World Series, but very quickly we mended fences and he became pro-me. And that made me happy because I liked the guy. I didn't want him being against me. I wasn't afraid of him, but I I, I liked what he was doing for the most part, and I, I think he misunderstood something I said, and that's why he was against me. I don't remember the story anymore. But uh, last year, Asian Spy asked if I would wear an Asian Spy patch. So I said, okay, sure. And I usually don't want to wear patches unless someone's paying me for it. But I felt Asian Spa deserved it. So he sent me these stickers in the mail. I thought he was going to send me real patches, but they were stickers. But okay, fine. You know, Uh, he's not a company. He's just a guy. And I wore them during certain events of the World Series saying the patch said, I'm on Team Spa, members helping members. And I promised him I would wear it and take a picture of it. And I did, and I posted it on Twitter. So I was very pro-Asian spa. He was supportive toward me personally. I kind of felt like I let the guy down a little bit when I didn't win that 5K limit last year because when I was doing well fairly early on in that event, and Jeff Madsen was also doing well early on in his event the same day, Asian spa predicted that me and Jeff Madsen would win bracelets in the events we were playing, separate events. Now, Madsen was someone who Asian Spa did not get along with and had been bashing for years and making fun of for years for Madsen's struggles. I don't know why he had a problem with Madsen. I think Madsen's an all, he's a decent guy, but uh, for whatever reason, Asian Spa didn't like him and was bashing him relentlessly for years, but then they mended fences and 
Asian spot became pro Madsen, and right then Madsen started winning again after years of struggles. Asian spot got Madsen to win again. I I don't know if they're related, but as soon as Asian spot threw his support behind Jeff Madsen, Jeff Madsen started kicking ass, and he still is to this day. And a lot of people are very uh, bullish on Madsen's chances this year at the World Series. Totally turned it around from a the view of him as a one-hit wonder and a has-been to someone who's a force again in poker. So here Asian Spot was saying that both me and Jeff Madsen were going to win. And Jeff Madsen did go on to win. And I came in with a chip lead with the final 12 and I finished fifth. And I, I, I kind of felt bad. I'm like, damn, I, I kind of let down Asian Spot. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, Asian Spot was very careful about his identity. There was various speculation as to who he really is. Was he really a Vegas insider? Did he even really live in Vegas? Was he someone very well known? There was some suspicion for a while that he was John Robert Balland. I never thought that, but some people did. A number of people thought that it was me and or Brian Mikon. In fact, there were some people who thought me and Mikon were sharing the Asian spa account and were actually operating it. And that the whole thing about uh, Mikon and I at one point feuding with Asian spa was a ruse to cover up the fact that that's who we actually were. But that's not true. It was not operated by me. It was not operated by Mikon. I can tell you that. So... Asian Spa was very careful with his identity. He would tweet things to people when he would see them at the World Series. Like he would see them and then tweet minutes later what he saw them doing, but they would never locate him. He was like a ghost. When he would call into radio shows, he would disguise his voice with a voice changer. But then he started to slip a little bit. He appeared on the infamous 22Q podcast with Jacep and Brandon and uh, various others with his own voice. First time that had ever been heard. And then he started to appear more and more on the radio with his own voice. And that started to remove some of the mystery about him. Not only did it allow people to start maybe identifying him, but it also made it clear who he wasn't. It was also clear that he wasn't John Robert Balland. It was clear that he wasn't me. It was clear that he wasn't Mikon. And that made a lot of the mystique of Asian Spa go away because a lot of the fun of Asian Spa was trying to figure out both who it is and who it isn't. And once you could rule out people, then it wasn't as fun anymore. On April 1st, 2014, less than two months ago, Asian Spa and the hosts of Low Limit Poker Radio called into this show. In fact, I titled that show, Your Show of Shows, because for quite some time, our shows were merged together. We were broadcasting at the same time. I'm going to play you a short clip of that show where Asian Spa was a guest on Low Limit Poker Radio, and they all called into Poker Fraud Alert, you'll get to hear Asian Spa on this show, and then I'll finish off with this topic. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, is this Todd Matillis? It is. Hey, Todd. What's going on, legend? Legend, okay. So who's calling here? 
This is actually well limited poker radio. Wow, you so guys we, are podcasting. Wow, okay, so we have uh, a radio show on another radio show. Oh, absolutely. You got Spa, Joe Ucello, and Pika. Really? So, okay, Asian Spa, uh, are you using your regular voice? What's going on, Todd? Oh, that's your real voice then? No, no voice changer this time? No changer. Wow, wow. So I, I don't think I've ever heard the real Asian Spa before. Maybe I'll have to co-host with you one night. Yeah, you will. I'd love that. You know, Asian Spy, he's like a ninja at the World Series. I'm, I'm telling you guys, it's amazing. Uh, for example, I was on my phone. It was actually Ken Scaler who called me during a Limit Hold'em event. And um, I, I popped up because I wasn't in the hand, and I basically told Ken, hey, I can't talk right now. Uh, i got to get back to the table. Uh, limit poker hands don't take very long. I didn't miss any hands. I will never miss any hands at a tournament. I'm a very big nit like that. So... Uh, Anyway, I wasn't on the phone very long, but I sat back down, and then I get a tweet very shortly afterwards from Asian Spa saying, Todd would tell us, get off the phone, sit back down, and concentrate on the game. And so I'm like, what? Where the hell is he? So I'm looking around, and this is actually a table that was way off in the corner of the Amazon room at the Rio, so it was not easy to observe from most of the room. So I'm thinking this guy has to be fairly close, and I could not find him. I looked around. I actually stood up and walked around. I could not find the guy. He was a ghost. It was my uh, Asian reflexes getting the hell out of the way. But I, <laughs> I do remember tweeting that to you. Yeah, yeah, your Asian reflexes. They were pretty good. I mean, you just you just disappeared immediately. And, uh, and I was even standing up walking around on the phone, and I didn't see anyone standing there. So they're pretty good. So, is this the normal lineup on uh, Low Limit Poker Radio, the three of you? Uh, no, it's actually usually Joe and myself. Uh, we did ask Spa to come on. It's uh, April Fool's, and I wanted to congratulate you and wish you a happy April Fool's. Okay, did you, hear, nobody the, did you hear the beginning of the show? No, I didn't, actually. Uh, there, there was an argument at the beginning of the show, an argument in my household at the beginning. Okay, so I'm not going to get into that again. But uh, you heard Spa talk a little bit there. He kind of had a Midwestern sort of accent there. Kind of sounded like a Midwestern guy in his 30s to me. That's kind of the voice that I picked up from that. So... Some people are claiming that they know who Asian Spy is. It has not been publicized. If you do know, I'd like to urge you, don't publicize it. Leave the guy alone. He wasn't hurting anyone except for people who, you know, kind of deserved it. And even even then, he wasn't really hurting them. He was just tweeting trash at them. But, uh, you know, it was mostly an innocent account. And I liked it because it was just candidly speaking about things and not caring who was offended. And usually Asian Spa was really right on. Occasionally he'd say things they didn't agree with. But usually he was pretty right on. And I know a lot of people were fans of the Asian Spa account. And it's sad that he's done away with it. I think he was feeling it was inevitable he was going to be exposed. I think it must have gotten to him in some way that people knew who he was and that maybe if he quits right now, 
it won't get out. Where if he continues and pisses off the wrong people, then it'll get out and he'll suffer retribution. Now, this is very common for people on the internet who are very opinionated and very brash, but are anonymous. This is very common that once their identity is known, that they don't want to continue, that they quit, that they go away, even if it's something they've devoted a lot of time and energy to for years. I've seen this time and time again, and there's a good reason for this. When your identity is known, especially in this day and age, there's a lot at stake because every word you write that's attached to your real name can come back to bite you. When people know who you are, they can write nasty stuff back about you, even stuff that isn't true. They can harass you. They can harass your family. There's, there's consequences. Even if it's consequences that aren't deserved, there's consequences when you piss people off under your actual identity. Sometimes I have to think for myself before I say something that is negative about someone or something. Will the fallout from this that I will suffer personally or I may suffer personally worth what I'm about to say? If it's something really important, I'll always say it. But sometimes if it's something of low importance that I think will really piss someone off, I'll think, no, I'm not going to say it. Or if it's someone I see all the time that I don't necessarily like that much, but at the same time I don't want to make an enemy of them and see them frequently when I play poker, I, I, I won't say it. Whereas if you're completely anonymous, you don't have to worry about what you say. So the tough thing is If you're around long enough, it's very hard to stay anonymous because you start to make friends, because you start to slip up. Um, The more you expose about yourself, the more you write, the more things you give away, even when you don't think you're giving anything away, the more easily people can find you. If you remember the Unabomber, not Phil Locke, but the actual Unabomber, the guy who was murdering people, he was caught because he published a manifesto that had specific kinds of wording that one of his family members recognized from reading his essays in the past. One of his family members, I think it was his brother, read the manifesto and like, wow, I remember unique wording like this in my brother's papers. And sure enough, he was right. That's, that's who the Unabomber was. So if the Unabomber hadn't published that manifesto uh, with, with so much writing to draw from, then he would have not been caught. So I think same with Asian Spy. I think he just uh, left too many ways open to be identified. And I think to him, it just wasn't worth whatever intrusion what would occur in his personal life for his identity to be found out. So he kind of quit preemptively, hoping that if he quits what he's doing, that the few people who know who he is won't say anything and it won't go any further. I think there's a decent chance it'll come out anyway, but if you do know, please don't say it. Let Asian Spa rest in peace. All right, somebody wants to call into the show. The phone number is 775-FRAUD55, but don't call yet. I just realized something. I, I realized that I had not turned on the phones here. 
<laughs> that's why that's why I haven't received any calls. I, the texts are working, but I had not uh, turned on the phones. So just one second, please. I occasionally forget to do this. Getting to forget these things in my old age. Uh, in the chat room, Jstat asking, why was Asian Spot gone days before the World Series of Poker? Did the World Series of Poker brass report a terms of service violation or threaten to out him? I don't think it has to do with that. I think it's a coincidence. Uh, what had happened was that Asian Spa's last tweet was actually uh, to JSTAT, and it was complaining that Low Limit Poker Radio, which you just heard on my show from the April 1st episode, was denied a media credential for the World Series of Poker. By the way, a Poker Fraud Alert got one. <laughs> but uh, for whatever reason, Low Limit Poker Radio did not get one. And Asian Spa sent out the following tweet. This was uh, four days ago. Said uh, he retweeted uh, JSTAT PR World Series of Poker guy Seth Polanski, World Series of Poker suited, refuses low limit poker media credential, and not qualified. Fucking ridiculous. So. I don't think it has to do with that. I think it's coincidental. I don't see the World Series of Poker brass caring that much about criticism of who gets a media credential. I think it's more because he was about to be found out. I I don't think he was deleted for terms of service violations either. Uh, It really does seem he left voluntarily. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, Droth. Yes. Do you know who this is? I do know who this is. But I don't want to give up. I don't want to give out my name. Oh, you don't want to give out your name. Okay, I, I I know who you are. I won't say who you are. You can uh, be anonymous if you like. So. Uh, All right, I appreciate that for right now. So okay, go go ahead. Um, uh, by the way, you got to watch out here because uh, you saw what happened to the uh, last anonymous guy that was on this show. <laughs> so. Um. So I was in AC for Memorial Day. Okay. I don't know who's run into this trouble before, but I decided to go to a Caesar's property. And guy kept walking away, and each time coming back and reeking more and more of smoking weed. So I go to the poker room manager, and I want you to put himself, put yourself in his shoes for a minute. He's confronted after the guy walks away three times as a security, and they're told of the situation. What do you do if somebody keeps coming back and not leaving your property, smoking weed and not getting rid of the odor, and players are complaining about it? Well, um, first of all, this is a Caesar's property, right? Yes, sir. Okay, so uh, they're actually pretty strict about this, where you're not even allowed to smoke weed in the parking lot of these properties. Uh, so I'm surprised that uh, you know that they weren't harsher on this, because even – if you get rid of the odor and come back, that's against the rules there. And I, I, truthfully, I don't really care if people want to go smoke weed in the parking lot, but uh, um, apparently they're very against that at the World Series of Poker. But I will say if the person's coming back and smelling very much of weed and it's bothering people at the table and they do it three times and it's complained about, that at the very least they should call the, put the player aside and say, hey, look, we're getting complaints that uh, you're – going and smoking weed during the breaks here and, and coming back and then the odor is bothering people at the table. 
um, you know, don't do this again or we're going to have to disqualify you. That That's what I would do if I was in that position there to do that. Well, unfortunately, I was told by management and security both that they have medicinal use now in New Jersey, huh. which I had to laugh at. I don't, I don't know how true that is, but I had to laugh at that. I mean, I just think it's uncalled for. I don't so, know if you want to do that the World Series or anything and what they do there, but so, apparently so, in AC it's allowed. So, so the, did they check that this guy was smoking medicinally, or did they uh, just say, we're not going to even ask? They, because... re- they refused. They wow. said, unless we can catch him smoking, and even if we do, he can have a, he can have a license for medicinal use in New Jersey. Well, like, I, I, like I said, I know is not allowed. Okay, well... Um, I don't know if it's allowed or not in New Jersey. I haven't heard that it is. Maybe the chat room can help me. But if, even if it is allowed, uh, I would think it's their responsibility to check that the guy has the proper card or whatever is needed in that state to be doing it. Um, and there's a good chance he wouldn't. And then warn him if he doesn't. Also, um, they don't necessarily have to allow that um, medicinally. I mean, I, I I believe they would still have a right to refuse service to him or to tell him to stop it, uh, even if you're allowed to smoke it legally in that state. Now, that I'm not 100% sure of, but what I can tell you for certain is that uh, they do have the right to say, prove to us that you have a prescription for this. So, and they have the legal right to smoke it. Uh, Let's see if the chat room knows if you can legally smoke pot in New Jersey. Does anybody know? From my Google search, it's not allowed. And as far as I know, Google's the smartest thing out there. Yeah, okay. Um, Someone's saying in the chat he wasn't caught smoking, he just reeked of pot. But, you know, uh, look, it's one thing if you show up to the table and you have body odor or whatever, and it's something, at that point, it's too late. You can't go tell someone, go take a shower and leave the tournament. Like, it's a... Um, but when you're intentionally doing something to create a smell that can bother people, uh, it is reasonable for the tournament staff to ask that player to stop that. Even cigarette smoking. Someone's asking about cigarette smoking in the chat. You're sure you're allowed to smoke cigarettes there, but if if you're creating a terrible cigarette smell somehow uh, when you're doing this, and it's really bothering everyone at the table, then I, I think they would have the right to say to people, um, don't smoke. But I think with pot, it's even worse because pot is not physically addictive. It's it's psychologically addictive, but it's not physically addictive to where um, you're going to have the same withdrawals that smokers have when they don't smoke. So I, is, someone in the chat is saying this caller is a bitch ass, but no, I, I understand yeah, the guy's I point. From Jay, I see that from Jay Costa. I mean, but I, it's the, probably Jay Costa was sitting next to me in the game. But. <laughs> yeah. No, listen, I mean, the guy has a, p- a point here, this caller, in that if the smell bothers you and it's distracting you at the tournament and this is something that's illegal and you, you want the guy to just stop doing it, you don't want him arrested, you don't want him barred from the property, you just want him to stop doing this on the breaks, or if he does it, at least... Uh, um, you know, take the care to make the smell go away for the most part, then um, they should do something about it. Especially, I know at the Caesars properties, they actually have a strict policy about not smoking in the parking lot. So I have to say, I agree with you that there should have been something said to the person, especially if multiple people said something about it. If it was one really sensitive guy, uh, I can understand where they may say, look, you just may have a strong sense of smell, but, 
you know, nobody else at the table is complaining. We're not going to harass this guy about it. But uh, okay, that's that's my opinion. I, I I don't think at the same time I don't think this is a horrendous uh, misstep by the people there. But but you know I I think you're right that it's not legal in New Jersey, and I think that if this guy is going and voluntarily smoking pot, which he doesn't have to do on the breaks, it's not like either some physical reason he has to do it and it's causing a disruption at the table, I, I think they should stop it. The, the whole point with tournaments is to keep it a pleasant environment. Well, it wasn't a tournament. It was, it, was a ca- it was a cash game. Oh, it was a cash game. Okay. Well, still, the whole thing with poker, you, you want to have a pleasant environment for everyone at the table. And anything that's interfering with that pleasant environment that is under control of the players, that is, you know, somebody acting obnoxiously or uh, or like what you're describing here with going smoking pot too often and making the whole table smell like pot, I, I think it's the floor man's duty uh, to stop this and make everybody happy. Whereas something like someone who just has a, a bad body odor or didn't shower enough, you know, that's a different story because uh, that's not something they can just stop doing. So yeah. um, a- anyway, uh, like, for example, if they were to be clamping down on bad hygiene, I mean, uh, Annie Duke would never have been able to play cash. So <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, thanks for the call. And uh, all I can say is, you know, you may have had a pot smell at the table, but at least there was no counterfeit chips. You're right. To your Thanks. knowledge. Okay, thank you for the call. And and by the way, people, I, I never smoke pot. I never have. I'm 42 years old. I've never smoked pot in my life. I've been around a lot of people who smoke pot. I've been in the room where most of the people are smoking pot. So I I haven't been one of these people that says, oh my God, pot, I've got to run away. But like, I've never found any interest in doing so. It's never appealed to me. It never has. It never will. So anyway, I know who that caller is, by the way, but he wants to be anonymous and I will respect that. Flipper Fair saying, uh, you went to UCSB and never smoked pot? Nerd alert. I mean, I, I easily could have, but it just never appealed to me. Drugs never appealed to me. I'll tell you what appealed to me a lot from a very young age, and that was gambling. You know, my parents went to Vegas, and they weren't big gamblers at all. They just went recreationally and played low-limit blackjack every so often, but... When we went there, I mean, even as like a six-year-old, I would give a dollar for my piggy bank to my parents and say, hey, bet this on a blackjack hand for me. (laughs) So I always had an interest in gambling. But drugs, never have. Drinking, never have. And, And the reason for that is I always like feeling that I'm mentally fully alert and in control. I, I don't want my mind to relax to where I'm hallucinating or to where I'm in a different state of mind. I, I don't want that. I want to feel the same state of alertness the whole time. When I'm falling asleep and I start to drift into a weird state in between consciousness and unconsciousness and I catch it, it's actually a very unpleasant feeling for me. I feel like I'm not in control. 
and uh, sometimes I'll like pop up and go, whoa, whoa, what's going on? What's going on? Like, like uh, I don't have trouble sleeping, but like in that one little in-between stage of falling asleep, first falling asleep, that is, I actually hate that feeling so much if I'm recognizing it as it's happening. So I just don't like anything that alters my state of mind. Um, Jay Stat saying, gambling's in your blood due to your heritage, Druff, as with Greeks and Asians. Well, it's true, a lot of Jews do like gambling, but my parents don't. My parents, uh, they went to Vegas, but they, they really played very low limits. They weren't into the whole gambling thing. They just, uh, they weren't against it, but they, they were not gamblers at all. And still aren't. But I had an interest in it, and even my brother had an interest in it. So, anyway. I know a lot of people in this chat room, in the forum, listeners to the show. I I know a lot of you think differently about drugs than I do, and, you know, that's up to you. I'm not going to tell you what you should or shouldn't do. But, you know, personally for me, it's just never appealed to me. So. Moving on. Where's my, where's my list? Here we are. Well, we have a bet going on Poker Fraud Alert against Daniel Negreanu and Phil Ivey. Daniel Negreanu publicized an offer he was making to the general public. The offer was that anyone willing to bet $5,000 or more could bet against him and Phil Ivey not winning a bracelet in 2014. And when I say a bracelet, I'm referring to only at the Rio at the 2014 World Series of Poker. So if either Negranu or Ivy win a bracelet this year, then they win the bet. If both of them don't win a bracelet this year, then they lose the bet. And obviously the bet will be decided by mid July, unless by some fluke one of the two of them makes the final table of the November 9 for the main event. So the only stipulations were that number one, you had to bet a minimum of $5,000 if you want to take part in this, and number two, you have to escrow or send your side of the bet to them first, unless Daniel knows and trusts you enough to pay up if you lose. So this situation, this offer was brought over to Poker Fraud Alert by Seriously Serious. I hadn't heard of it till he brought this over here and asked if maybe people want to take part in this. Maybe Poker Fraud Alert should put together some money to bet on this. And even though Seriously Serious initially expressed interest in betting on this, he ultimately didn't do so, or at least if he did, he didn't do it through this site. But we do have uh, 
11 people, myself included, who have pulled together $7,500 exactly to bet against Ivy and Negranu winning a bracelet in 2014 at even money. So if they don't win a bracelet, we win 7500 bucks. If one of them or both of them win a bracelet, then we lose 7500 bucks. It's very easy. The money did not have to be escrowed. Negranu said that he knows and trusts me enough to pay up if we lose. I'm taking responsibility for all the money. I've already collected the money from everybody betting. And you guys know I won't roll you. And Negranu knows I won't roll him. Negranu and I are not friends. But he definitely knows who I am. You know, there's some big name pros out there that don't know me or barely know me. Negranu knows me enough. He knows my story. He knows what I'm about. He knows about Poker Fraud Alert. Uh, He knows about my anti-cheating activism that I've been involved with over the years. We share a common dislike of Annie Duke and that whole family. Negranu came up to me last year voluntarily and uh, was trashing Annie Duke to me when I was sitting there eating before a main event, not the main event, but before an event we were both playing. So we get along. As I said, we're not friends, but we get along. So I figured, hey, he's probably not going to make me escrow, and I was right. So I do have to say that now I'm rooting against Negranu and rooting against Phil Ivey every time I see them in a World Series event because I want to win this bet and I want our users to win this bet. So in this bet, we have Spooky Gook, who has bet 100, Vintage One, who bet 200, Sandwich, who bet 1,000, Shiz Money, who bet 100, Bob, who bet 200, Gut, who bet 400, Daily, who bet 250, Forbet, who bet 2,000, Willie McFML, who bet 2,000, System Out Printline, who bet 250, and I am betting 1,000 for a grand total of 7,500. So that's exactly the money we will win or lose based upon if one of these guys wins a bracelet. Now, in the first event that they played this year, the 25K Mix Max, No Limit Hold'em. Negron is already out, and uh, Ivy had about average chips last I looked in the event in day two, but still a long way to go on that one. Kind of suck if it just, if Ivy just wins this and it's over. Uh, the 25K Mix Max is one of them that they have a better chance of winning because it only has 131 players in it. But uh, there were some people who were skeptical of this bet. People who were saying it's a sucker bet. The biggest reason that many were against this bet um, I I guess I'm hearing in the chat room that um, there's 20 people left in the mixed max and there's he's number 14 out of 20 in chips. So that's, that's already a little scary. <laughs> but Still, you know, he's uh, less than average in chips, so hopefully uh, he'll be gone soon. As I said, Negron is already out. But some people really criticized those like us who took this bet, saying that we we're on the wrong side of it. And you couldn't bet on their side. You had to take this side if you wanted to do the bet. 
and that it was pretty much a sucker bet. A former member of our little community here, which originated on Never Win, Never Win Poker, Empire Maker 2 tweeted, if you bet against the Ivy Daniel Negreanu in this bracelet bet, you have brain damage and got hustled hard. I had them around minus 160. Crazy they got even odds. That means he had them... He had the correct odds at uh, having to... Or getting at $160 for every 100 you bet and to get even money for every 100 he thought was terrible for the people betting against them. Then Stealth Monk wrote, I'm convinced the people that bet against... Ivy and Negranu don't have the faintest idea how or even tried to calculate the odds. Well, I'll admit something. I didn't calculate the odds. I kind of just haphazardly fired a thousand on this because it's not life-changing money either way, and I thought it would be fun. And other people on my site did it, so I said, why not? I I knew it wasn't going to be something that was a sucker bet or something that was really a huge advantage on our side either way. I knew that it was going to be fairly close to even, so whatever. If I was a little bit uh, negative EV there, a little bit positive EV, I, I just wanted the fun of it, and I think that's why everybody else did it too. So I still started to think, wow, what if Stealth Monk went and calculated this and realized that we were like huge underdogs here? Maybe I was a fool. Like I don't mind so much if I lose here, if it was like a 50-50 proposition, but I do mind if they had a big edge on me and I didn't realize it. So I decided to go and make some rough calculations today, and I'm going to reveal on this show what those calculations were without being too boring. Um, basically, I went through the event, the list of all 65 World Series events, and they're not going to play 65 events. It's impossible because many of them conflict with one another. But I went through them and figured out which were the smaller field events to where they have a realistic chance of winning. For example, the Millionaire Maker on Saturday is going to have over 6,000 people probably. So no matter how good you are, your chance of winning an event with 6,000 people is tiny. It's tiny. It doesn't matter how good you are. It's tiny. It's so small that you don't even have to bother to calculate what your chances are in winning it for a bet like this. So the only events that really matter for purposes of this bet are the ones with smaller fields. When I say smaller fields, I mean anywhere from fewer than 100, as I think two events this year will have, to fewer than 800. Anything with more than 800, I think it starts to be too many people to where you even have to worry about them winning. Of course, they can fluke into it, but it's just not something that you would really figure in as far as whether this is a good bet or not. So this is the list of events that I came up with. Well, I'm not going to list it just yet. I came up with a list of events, several events, that I determined were going to have 800 or fewer entrants. And I then categorized them by color. The purple events, and I just made up these colors. They, they don't mean anything. The purple events are the ones with an expected field of fewer than 100. The blue events are the ones that should have 100-something people, 100 to 199. The green events, 200-something people. The red events, anywhere between 300 and 499. Orange events, anywhere between 500 and 799. Everything else I ignored. 
So I came up with two purple events, and that's the one drop, which is going to probably have around 40 players, which is obviously the one you're worried about the most. And the no limit deuce to seven draw low ball, which I think is going to get around 90 people. Then we came up with eight blue events, including the 25K Mixed Max No Limit Hold'em today and yesterday. Uh, the Limit Deuce to 7 Triple Draw Low Ball 10,000 buy-in. That's uh, very soon as well. I think it's tomorrow. The 7-card Raz 10K event, event number 18. Uh, event number 28, the 10K Pot Limit Hold'em. Event number 40, Heads Up No Limit Hold'em 10K buy-in. Event number 44, the 50K Poker Players Championship. Event number 52, an event I'll be playing, the Limit Hold'em $10,000 buy-in event. And event number 61, the 10K 7-card stud event. So these are events that, based upon past participation, I determined will likely have 100-something players. Those are the ones where I think they have the second biggest chance to come away with a bracelet. The green represents an expected field of... 200-something, and I think there's three of those. Event number 10, limit Omaha high-low split, eight or better. Seven-card, and that's a 10K buy-in. The 10K seven-card stud high-low split, eight or better, which is event number 38. And um, where's the third one? Oh, yeah, the event number 22, the 10K horse. So there's the three of those. The red events, there's five of them that I identified. This is ones that will have 300 to 499 players, in my opinion. Seven-card Raz, $1,500 buy-in. Limit Deuce to Seven, Triple Draw, $1,500 buy-in. Omaha, seven-card Stud High, Low Split, Eight or Better, $2,500 buy-in. I'm sorry, there's nine of these, not five. Uh, Event number 35, No Limit Hold'em, Eight-Handed, 5K buy-in. Event number 36, No Limit Deuce to 7, Low Ball, $1,500 buy-in. Event number 42, Pot Limit Omaha, 6-handed, 5K buy-in. Event number 50, 8-game mix, $1,500 buy-in. Event number 54, uh, PLO 8, 3K buy-in. And event number 64, Pot Limit Omaha, 10K buy-in. So most of these are lower buy-in events of non-Hold'em variety. And a few of them are higher buy-in events uh, of... Hold'em, I think maybe one or two is. But anyway, those are events that I think should get between like 300 and 500 people. I call those red. There's nine of them. Finally, the orange events are ones that should have more than 500 but fewer than 800. They include the event number 24, No Limit Hold'em Six-Handed, 5K. The event number 30, Seven Card Stud High Low, Eight or Better, 1,500. The Dealer's Choice Six-Handed for 1,500, event number 41. The event number 43, Limit Hold'em, $1,500 buy-in, which I'll be playing. And finally, event number 59, Omaha Low Split 8 or Better for a 3K buy-in. So these, I think, will have more than 500, but fewer than 800. So for my approximations here, what I did was uh, ignoring the purple for the moment, the ones with the fewest players. uh, For all the other colors, I picked kind of a, a median for the number of expected players. So for the blue, we're just going to pick a median of 150. For the green, a median of 250. For the red, a median of 400. For the orange, a median of 600. And I'm, I'm making 600 because uh, I think more of them are going to have closer to 500 than 800. So I thought 600 was a good thing to choose. And then calculate 
what an average player, that is one that is not going to be helped or hurt by the strength of the field, someone who's exactly a middle-of-the-road player that's going to perform exactly average, where in a 100-player field we'll have a 1% chance of winning. I just did this for simplicity. And came up with the following. In the blue events, that player would have a 0.67% chance of winning. In the green events, 0.4% chance of winning. In the red events, a 0.25% chance of winning. And in the orange events, a 0.17% chance of winning. Anyway, when you multiply this by the number of events that there are, I came up with, and this is all rough calculations. It's not exact by any means, but I came up with a rough number of 9.63% is the chance that an average player playing all those events I just listed would come away with a bracelet. 9.63%. Now, two things. First of all, we haven't done... Well, three things. First of all, we have not brought in the purple events yet. So the one drop, we're going to assume they have about 40 players. Right now they have 36, but let's say 40 will play this year. That gives an average player in that event a 2.5% chance of winning. So you got to add 25 on there. And then the other event, the 10K No Limit Deuce to 7 Low Ball... I'd say it's going to have about 90 players, so that gives an average player a 1.11% chance of winning. So adding that all in, all those events together, an average player would have a grand total of 13.24% chance of winning a bracelet that year if they're completely average in every event they play. Now, since we have two people, Negranu and Ivy, we double that to make 26.48% chance that one of the two will win at least one bracelet. But wait. We can't say that Ivy is an average player. We can't say that Negranu is an average player. It is acknowledged, especially in Ivy's case, but also in Negranu's case, that they're both very good. I think Ivy is one of the all-time greats. And Negranu, there's a lot of different opinions of his game, but he definitely knows what he's doing. He's definitely a very good player. Even with the rise of many great players that have come forth in recent years. So, obviously they get a bump up. Obviously they have a greater than 26.48% chance to win a bracelet between the two of them this year. But how much better? Now, if you could say they each had a double chance than the average player of winning a bracelet in each event they're playing, then we're in bad shape because that would make their chance of winning about 53%. And that already puts them over the 50% mark, and that makes our bet bad. But wait, I don't think they're anywhere near double. The reason is that in the smaller field events, and that's where most of their chance is going to come to win, the smaller field events, they are playing against a lot of very good and talented players. So even a great player like Ivy just doesn't have that much of an edge. He has some edge, and of course there are some fish or semi-fish in the fields, but they don't have any kind of edge like two times. They don't even have an edge like 1.5 times. If they were selling themselves, they were selling pieces of themselves, how much markup would be the right thing to charge? I'm not talking about how much they could get. They could get a lot because of their star power, but if you ignore that, If you ignore the artificial inflation of their markup, if they were to be selling because they're famous, what they'd really be worth would not be anywhere near 50% markup because 
And that's just too much, especially in these small events where you, they're playing against a lot of really good players. But let's assume that they are worth 50% markup on average. If you multiply this 26.48% by 1.5, which is what you do for 50% markup, you'd still only get 39.72%, which is still less than 40%. Now, yes, they get a little bit extra now because they will play some other events than what I listed above, the ones with big fields, and there is a very small chance, uh, but there is a chance that they could win one of those. But they also might miss some of the events I listed because of conflicts. So that somewhat evens that out. So I think that we still have an edge here. How much of one, I don't exactly know, because it's impossible to rate how much of an edge Ivy and Negranu collectively have over the fields they're playing against. It's just, there's no way to determine that. But even if you give them a very, very generous edge of 50%, they still fall short with about a 40% chance of coming with a bracelet. Now, I'm not saying we have an overwhelming favorite on our side. We could very easily lose this. Hell, we could even even lose on the first event here if uh, Ivy runs well and uh, wins this first event he's playing. So, uh, just to show that I'm not crazy for making this bet, uh, very respected player Kyle Rose, KPR16, is making a bet with Ivy himself for 2-1 to one against Ivy winning a bracelet, where basically uh, uh, Kyle Rose gets uh, $2 one for every $1 he bets. Or sorry, it's the other way around. He's, uh, he's getting... Ivy's getting $2 for every $1 that, uh, that he bets with Ivy about this. But he's only betting on Ivy, not Negranu. So since Ivy is considered the better player of the two, if KPR is willing to do a two-to-one bet, a one-to-one bet on the two of them together, I think is a great deal unless KPR really got rolled here. But even putting that aside, for my calculations, I can't see how we are not at least a little bit of a favorite here. Someone asking in chat, what's your guess the two of them have in bracelet bets? Um, Money-wise, I don't know. I I don't follow these things. I don't follow these things. So, you know, good luck to us. Bad luck to Negranu and Ivy. I want the poker fraudler community to become $7,500 richer. I'd really like to see that. I see Ivy's already playing the 1K Pot Limit Omaha event. Is he multi-tabling here? (laughs) Is Ivy actually multi... This is going to help us if he's multi-tabling because... You know, it gives him more chances to win, but this makes him not be able to concentrate on the events he's playing as much. Let's see if... uh, Yeah, so... uh, Give you a little update here as far as how Phil Ivey 
is doing, and he is multi-tabling, by the way, but I'll give you a little update of how he's doing in the Mixbacks event. With 20 players left, he has fallen all the way down to 19th out of the 20. He just lost a big pot. So, he's getting close to busting. Average stack is about 500k. He has 173k. Chip leader has a million. Including Vanessa Selps, who's like the co-chip leader with a guy named Calvin Anderson. Vanessa Selps just killed it yesterday, then got off to a terrible start today, and then has just come roaring back. I mean, I, that girl's just amazing. Uh, she just seems to constantly own these No Limit Hold'em tournaments. It's impressive. She, I really think she's the best female poker player that's ever lived. And she's still early in her career. I think she'll end up in the Poker Hall of Fame for sure. So, you know, you can say what you want about how she looks and all that, but uh, definitely in poker, she's very good. And, you know, and Vanessa Selp, she's known as an honest person. I know she has uh, a bad temper, isn't very nice at the table sometimes, but, uh, you know, there's nothing shady about her. And she's spoken out in the past against shady sites. So I have respect for Vanessa Selbst. I don't think she likes me very much because I was associated with Neverwin, and she hates Neverwin. But uh, talking about Neverwin himself, not the site. Anyway, I'm glad my bracelet bet is not against Vanessa Selbst. <laughs> but but uh, it looks like Ivy's probably not going to do all that much in this one. Looks like we will dodge the first bullet of the 131-player 25K Mixed Max. Especially if Ivy's already concentrating on the other tournament. Though I think he's doing it on a break. You know, but here he's not taking a break. He's just going to play constant poker. Couldn't be helping him. All right, so... um, Oh, I'm sorry. It's not Kyle Rose. It's it's. Uh, I think Kyle Rose is somebody else. It's Kyle Ray. I think Kyle Rose is one of the uh, guys in the Magic: The Gathering crew. You know, Eric Froelich's friends, David Williams' friends. I think that's. I think Kyle Rose is that. Guy. I think that's who Kyle Rose is. I think I used to play against him on Stars. All righty. So. Uh, Let's move on. Let's see if I got any text messages here. Remember, the text message number is different. See, I'm not getting many texts because we got the different phone number. It's 702-623-1423. 702-623-1423. Pull over hoodie is my vote. I don't even know what that means. It's the only text we've gotten. See, I changed the damn phone number. Nobody texts me. Very depressing. I know it's not the easiest phone number to remember, but that's the number I got. Can't uh, get texts anymore on the main phone number. It's just the way it is. Alrighty, so uh, let's move on. Let's just looked at the ratings, the live ratings of the show. They're actually better than what we've had in a while. So 
leads a lot of people to listening. Let's talk about Choice Center. We've talked about that before here. Choice Center is a self-help organization slash business in the Las Vegas area. And Daniel Negranu and Antonio Ensfandiari are heavily involved with it, especially Negranu. They don't own it, but they got very involved with it. Um, a lot of people call it a cult, and I understand why, because it has cult-like aspects to it. Uh, basically, it's a life improvement organization where you go to seminars where you expose a lot of deep personal details about yourself in a group setting and the so-called experts there help you assess what you need to do to achieve your goals to be happier to prioritize things properly in your life and you say, oh, yeah, these sound like good things. How could I even slightly be criticizing a thing that encourages such healthy behavior? They even have a charity element to it where they raise money for charity. I mean, on the surface, this could all look very good. Now, Daniel Negranu has gotten a lot of people involved in this. And it was funny, at first, when he got involved which I think began in 2012. He wasn't public about it. In January 2013, he missed the NBC Heads Up event and made up an excuse on his video blog saying that uh, he had to be with some friends that really needed him. And that wasn't true. He was going to uh, a Choice Center seminar on that date. So he wasn't being with friends that needed him. I mean, I guess technically he could say yes, but that was very misleading. Now, not that it's our business why Negreanu is missing events. He has a right not to play any event he doesn't want to play. He doesn't owe us an explanation. I'm just saying that at first he wasn't upfront about it, but then at some point he changed and started becoming very public about this Choice Center and was really trying to push people to become parts of it. Now, Here's a short list of people who were involved with Choice Center as of about 16 months ago. This, this list has grown. I just haven't kept track. Theo Tran, and Theo was known to have bad gambling problems, and he was obviously susceptible to a magic bullet life-changing therapy like this. Uh, Sorel Mizzi, who is currently Negranu's protege, and, you know, he's had a lot of uh, issues in the past, especially ethical lapses. Gavin Smith, now this guy's always been susceptible to this sort of thing. He was a huge customer of infamous life coach Sam Chuan, who's kind of disappeared from the Vegas scene. But, uh, you know, if he was big on Sam Chuan, you could see why he'd be big on Choice Center. Eric Lindgren, a close friend of Negranu's, and we all know about his problems. Nick Helmuth, that's Phil Helmuth's son, Daniel and Phil are good friends. Mike Binger, who's Nick Binger's brother. Uh, Jeff Gross, 
who's a good friend of Michael Phelps. And uh, I guess if somehow they could have gotten Phelps involved, this could have been a huge score for Choice Center. Matthew Waxman and Adam Junglin. So all these people are said to have been involved. Some have confirmed as some haven't, but I believe all these people really have been involved in Choice Center. And many others have gone. Some have gone and said, hey, you know, I don't like this. This isn't for me. Others have spoke positively of it, but said they're no longer involved with it. And others have gone all the way through and become big advocates of it, including Antonio Esfandiari. Now, Choice Center has three segments to it. What happens is you pay $2,700 each for two different seminars. Part number one is called Discovery. Part number two is called Breakthrough. And that already kind of sounds like BS, you know, Discovery, like you're discovering yourself, Breakthrough, like you're breaking through. I mean, it's, it's already very gimmicky, as you can see. Uh, basically, this is a really expensive large group awareness training course. They're known as LGATs. And a lot of these are scams or semi-scams. Uh, a lot of these are cults or semi-cults. So the question is, what is Choice Center? Well, the general consensus from those that have been to Choice Center, especially those that haven't continued there and have spoken candidly of their experiences. And by the I know a recent person who's very pro-Choice Center is a Christy Arnett, a reporter, a poker reporter who also plays a little bit too, the Asian girl. Um, the general consensus is that the first two parts of Choice Center, discovery and breakthrough, are not harmful. They may not help everyone. There's a lot of meaningless psychobabble, and the people in charge aren't necessarily qualified, and they don't necessarily have the proper training or education to be giving people the advice that they are. But still, the general consensus is that the advice that is given in these settings is pretty good. That people really do sometimes gain from discovery and breakthrough. Um, I think a lot of it is stating the obvious. In fact, in one example that was given, someone who was having trouble holding on to money someone who was having financial problems, was helped by Choice Center because Choice Center convinced them to budget their money better. I'm not even kidding. That, that's what they paid uh, $5,400 for, was to find out how to, uh, that they should budget their money and then they won't run out of it. <laughs> but, but the truth is, some people need that advice. Some people need to get it all out there, go in a public setting, not public, but in a, a large group setting, Talk about, oh, man, I'm always broke. Oh, man, I have so many financial problems and I have all this uh, credit card debt. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And why, why do other people have savings and I don't? And then they're like, well, do you have a budget? Uh, no. Well, have you thought of making a budget and budgeting this much for rent and this much for food and being careful about uh, impulse purchases? Oh, wow. 
you know, I never thought about doing that. And then, you know, and then the whole group gives them the warm fuzzies and everybody feels great. And you walk out of there going, wow, I should budget my money. And then you come out and you start budgeting your money and your finances improve. And some a choice center gives you a plan on how to pay down your credit card debt. And you walk out feeling wonderful and think this is 5K well spent. Uh, I guess some people need that. About 15 years ago, I had a girlfriend who worked a regular job, made okay money, had very low expenses, didn't have any kids or anyone to support but herself. And she was always broke. And I said, I don't understand this. I don't see you living an expensive lifestyle. I don't see where the money's going. So she showed me where her money was going how she was spending, and I said, here, let me suggest these changes, and I, I gave her some changes to make that wouldn't affect her lifestyle at all. She'd pretty much live the exact same lifestyle and just still save money and then would have savings to put away every month, and it worked, and suddenly she was building up savings while her life was exactly the same. Maybe I should have charged her 2700 bucks for this, but uh, you know, this is obvious stuff. A lot of it's obvious stuff. People who have drinking problems, people who have drug problems, people uh, who neglect their family, people who work too much, uh, people who have temper problems. Choice Center delves into their lives, figures out why they have the problems they're having, why they're not achieving their goals, and gives common sense suggestions as to how they can improve. I mean, honestly, I think it's a waste of money. I'm not saying that I'm anywhere close to perfect, but I'm sure I could sit down and list things that I think I could do better and make an attempt to do them. I think I'm introspective enough to do that. But I, I think there are some people that really just need to be told in this kind of setting, this is what you need to do. Most, A lot of people don't need that. I'm not saying I'm anyone special. But a lot of people need this sort of feel-good environment to convince them to change. A lot of people need to feel like they have the love and support uh, unconditionally of people who want to see them improve and aren't judging them in order to make these changes. So, the first two parts... Well, I think are kind of nothing special and basically stating the obvious. Uh, They aren't really hurting anyone. Unfortunately, there's a third part called leadership legacy, which is a much more involved and much longer part of Choice Center, where you are strongly pressured to recruit others to Choice Center. And that's where the cult-like angle begins here. That's where it starts to look more like a cult. Because instead of just counting on word of mouth, instead of just counting on people saying, hey, this is great, this changed my life, I'm just going to tell my friends about this because I think it's so wonderful. Similar to the way you will tell your friends about (coughs) a great restaurant that you just ate at or a great hotel you just ate at or something fun you went and just did, a great vacation you took, a great airline you just flew. You you will tell people when you have a good experience with a particular business or product or activity, 
because you want others that are in your life to experience what you did and enjoy what you did. That's natural. But for some reason, Choice Center doesn't want to just count on that. Choice Center, in their leadership legacy course, puts a lot of pressure on those who have gotten this far to start recruiting their friends and family. And that is very cult-like. And that part, Negranu has definitely fallen victim to. He's constantly plugging Choice Center now, as are many others. And you have to understand that Choice Center makes a lot of money. You know, each person attending these large group seminars is paying 2700 bucks or thereabouts for it. And the more people that get recruited, the more money they make. And that's why they want to put the pressure on people in these leadership legacy courses to recruit as many as possible. Because every time they recruit someone, it's another $2,700. And every time that person recruits someone, it's another 2700 And you multiply, 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 they make a lot of money. And another problem here is that people start to become dependent upon it. And people falsely attribute good fortune as being related to Choice Center. And in poker, as you know, your fortunes can quickly change. And a lot of it's not based upon anything you're doing. A lot of it's based upon luck. Not saying all poker is luck, but if if you're a good player and you're going through a tough streak and then you break out and suddenly do well, sometimes it's just a matter of the cards changing. And you can't just say, hey, I joined Choice Center and now I've won won some tournaments and it must, must be because of them. But that's poker players are especially susceptible to this for a few reasons. Number one, the reason I just stated, because they're very results-oriented and if they join Choice Center and don't win, well, then... Uh, you don't really hear about it because it can be said, well, you know, Choice Center never said they're going to improve your poker play. And if you join Choice Center and do start winning, well, then you give them the credit. So it's almost like a free roll for Choice Center. Number two, poker players frequently have excess cash to spend. So while a number like $2,700 for one course would seem excessive for most people, for poker players who win and lose much more than that in single sessions, it seems like nothing. And number three, a lot of poker players are kind of looking for some kind of direction in life. A lot of them are unhappy people. A lot of them don't feel fulfilled. A lot of them are depressed by their surroundings of angry people at the tables and scams and shady associates and the constant competitive environment. Poker is not a community where you feel a lot of love, a lot of support. You just don't. There's a lot of competition. There's a lot of bad stuff that goes on. There's a lot of depressing losing streaks and people going broke. A lot of controversy. The poker environment, the professional poker lifestyle is not one that often leaves you feeling warm and happy. So something like this can be very appealing to poker players looking for direction. Now, Negranu, 
My guess as to why he got so involved in this was because it was shortly after the death of his mother. Daniel was very, very, very close to his mother. I think his dad has been gone for quite some time. Daniel's not married. Uh, As far as I know, he didn't have any kind of serious relationship at the time. So while many people really like Negranu and respect him, and while he has a degree of fame, he probably felt like there really wasn't anyone in this world who loved him after his mom was gone. He even wrote in his blogs about how he and his brother had problems. So here his parents were gone, especially his mom, who he was so close to. And he felt like, wow, who's who really loves me in this world now? And that's exactly what leaves you susceptible. I don't know this for sure. I'm just speculating. But uh, the people most susceptible to cults and to self-improvement organizations are ones that don't have a solid foundation of people that love them and that they can talk to at home. It's people who feel lonely and isolated are the ones most susceptible to this sort of thing. So Negranu wrote a very enthusiastic blog about Choice Center recently and of course was defending a lot of the criticisms of it. Now, there's someone that I used to be friends with that is very anti-Choice Center. If Daniel Negranu is the ultimate Choice Center cheerleader, the ultimate Choice Center detractor is my former co-host and website partner, Brian Mikon. Brian Mikon, for whatever reason, I think I may know why, but I'm not going to say it, but for whatever reason, absolutely detests Choice Center. He's never been to it before, but he is constantly criticizing Choice Center publicly. And I will say, despite the differences that Mikeon and I have had in the last two years, I agree with him, with everything he's saying. Now, I don't feel the same degree of fervor against Choice Center like he does. I don't really care that much about it, while he seems to care a lot. But uh, as far as my opinion of Choice Center, it's pretty close to Micon's. So don't take this as a criticism of Micon. This is one spot where I agree with him. He just seems to care about it a lot more than I do. But I do find the whole thing interesting. Now, where we get the best view of Choice Center is from people who have gone and are not continuing to drink the Kool-Aid. Choice Center, their format is very typical of cults or semi-cults where they have a weeder process. The weeder process makes sure that the only people who really get deeply involved are ones who are very committed to it. The way Choice Center can figure out who's committed to it is by seeing who wants to move on to leadership legacy. They feel if you've paid 2700 bucks per uh, session for the first two parts and you still want to go to the third session and invest months in that third part, which is much longer than the first two parts, much, much longer. If you want to do that, if you've gotten through the first two parts and enthusiastically want to continue, then you're who they want. 
Whereas if you go through part one or part one and part two and feel kind of iffy and then don't want to commit much time or energy to anything more after that, well, then they don't really want you either. They want the real dedicated people. This is a very common tactic. Even the, even the Nigerian scammer use, use this tactic. Nigerian scammers will ask you for your bank account information. And of course, your immediate thought is, the Nigerian scammers want my bank account information so they can steal out of my bank account. But no, that's not why they want it. They want your bank account information so they can see who is a sucker. If you give your bank account information to them, then they feel that you are dumb enough to continue scamming. If you say, no way in hell I'm giving this to you, well, then they know that you're never going to fall for what they're trying to sell you here, and they give up on you. So it's a weeder, just like Choice Center is a weeder. It's not a direct scam like the Nigerian stuff, but it is a weeder. So the best perspective we get on Choice Center are from those that actually attended the course but chose not to continue with it, the ones who can come out and speak candidly about it. So Seriously Serious, who always does the best interviews with poker players, did an interview recently with Brian Rast, who is a very good poker player, very respected in the poker world. He was talked into going to Choice Center, and someone, in fact, paid his $2,700 week one session. So they actually paid his fee. And this is Brian Rast, who has plenty of money, but... uh, this person, who was not named, was so into Choice Center that they actually paid for Brian Rast to attend the first week, thinking that he would love it and uh, continue all the way through. Well, Brian Rast did not continue. After the one week, he said, uh-uh, this is not for me. And I think he gives a pretty fair assessment, where you can tell he doesn't hate Choice Center. He's not bitter toward Choice Center, but he gives a pretty fair assessment. I'm going to let you listen to what he had to say about Choice Center. And uh, I'm not going to make you listen to that obnoxious music at the beginning no offense seriously serious got an offer to you know a friend of mine really wanted me to go and offered to pay for my session and so i decided on you know one weekend to take him up on it and check it out and basically it's kind of like a crash course in like psychology you know group therapy and um everything so you know i thought it was interesting i definitely i mean i think anybody could benefit from whether or not it's a choice or, you know, going and doing meditation with Buddhist monks for three days or whatever, like basically taking time out of their life to like analyze, you know, how they feel about things, you know, what's going on, like what's important to them, you know, how are they valuing the things that are important to them? And I mean, a lot of these things end up being kind of what happens at choice. So, you know, choice was valuable for that. And I I got something out of it. And I think you know, but I, I don't think choice is special in that it's the only way that you could, you know, like help yourself out in, in those kind of uh, manners. I mean, I think tearing people down is part of the process. And I think, you know, also you're there for a very long time. You don't eat very much. It's a very st- stressful situation like that. And there's actually been like a lot of stuff written about this, like LGAT. It's a type of, you know, large group therapy that uses this model and choice isn't the only person. The problem with it is that in a lot of these situations, you know, when you break people down and then build them back up, you essentially, like, make them emotionally dependent on that particular place. Because people are, I mean, a lot of people have very addictive personalities. A lot of people have, 
big problems in their lives. And when you help them deal with a problem, you give them like a sense of ecstasy of, of you know personal achievement, and like that's the place they do it. People like now start associating that place with what's positive in their life, and not actually the changes they're making. So like the whole point of choice or any like self help place is great. Learn about your life, what you value, how to live better, and then go do it. Not like you know change your life to being at the place that you're learned about. So, you know, I, like, personally, I have a family and, like, poker and a lot of stuff, so you know, I'm not going to replace my family with Choice Center. So, I mean, you know, I did the first weekend and learned some valuable stuff and, and then, you know, didn't go back because, uh, you know, I got busy. It was before the World Series. Last year I made a, or maybe it was two years ago, but I made a trip to Macau and then the World Series came up and just stuff happened in my life and, and kind of moved on past it and, and what was the first part of the question? Aggressive recruiting, high pressure yeah, sales. Yeah, so the, I mean, so choice is a business, which I think a lot of people have reasonable objections that to businesses essentially, you know, that are supposed to help you. But like, it turns out they basically turn their their class, their members, all into like recruits. So you know, you could make an analogy, like you know, it's like a like a self replicating like virus or bacteria, you know, if you were going to put it in a negative spin, which I've heard people do. And like, you know, I actually think from talking to a lot of people, you know, like the first two parts of the seminar, which are called discovery and breakthrough, are actually mostly focused on just like self-improvement with very minimal amount of marketing other than maybe like basically keeping other people that are doing it with you still in the program, uh, which like, isn't that intrusive? But then, like, the third section, which is called leadership, um, apparently, like, basically, you know, a big section of it is, like, getting people to come to choice, along with other things, and it's, like, a long program. And, I mean, I definitely think there are reasonable objections to that. Like, you know, it's a, it is a business, and I think that's something at the end of the day that everyone needs to remember, that, like, yeah, you know, you can go and positive things can happen, but you know, also they're going to be using you to get other people to come. And, you know, maybe you like the place enough that you're totally okay with that. But, um, you know, I, you know I, I kind of see people reasonably being able to object to, because some of the recruiting is, like, very aggressive. And for some people, like, the amount of money, like $2,700, is, is a lot. And to be aggressively recruited by people you care about Oftentimes, forcefully or, or you know, very strongly to like put up that kind of money can be a bit over the top. I think for a lot of people. Uh, yeah, I definitely think Antonio's changed some since attending the course. You know, I think it's helped him. You know, in his life. I mean, you know, Antonio also did like Sam Chuan, and like during the time he did Sam Chuan, like that the life coach guy. Like, did did he like start doing better at poker? I mean, really, like Sam was the moment in his life when. Like, he kind of turned the corner in poker and started tearing it up. And, like, he actually won that WPT. So I'll stop it there. He just goes on to talk about how Antonio was actually starting to do better when he was going to the Sam Chuan life coaching and that he just kind of continued with Choice Center, so he can't really credit Choice Center for his recent wins. But I agree mostly with what Brian Rast had to say there. And I like what he had to say about the how it's like a virus that replicates. And that's what the recruiting there is about. I like that analogy. And I like how he raised the point that they're a business. That their purpose is to make money, 
not to be all warm and fuzzy and help you. If they were about helping people, they could charge a hell of a lot less than $2,700 and still keep the doors open, still keep the lights on. They're making a lot of money off of suckers. Now, let's say you really need some life help. Let's say you really need some good advice, even if it's from people who may not be qualified. That's the other thing. These are not professionally qualified people to be helping you. They, they are deeming themselves professionally qualified to help you, but they don't have the proper training. But look, $2,700, or if you go to both weekends, $5,400, is a lot of money. If you really need the help, don't go to these large group therapy sessions. Go get individual help from a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist who will charge you like 120 an hour, 150 an hour, whatever. You can get in a lot of personal one-on-one hours with these licensed therapists that will help you a hell of a lot more than two weekends in a large group session at Choice Center. This is really overpriced. It's really just an overpriced group self-help session that then turns into a semi-cult-like high-pressure recruiting situation to those that drank the Kool-Aid of the first two sessions. Choice Center is not something that exists for the good of the world. It is something that exists to separate suckers from their money. And while they may be helping these suckers, these suckers could be getting the help for much less money and from more qualified people. And from people that will not be pressuring them to recruit others. Pretty much anything in life where you are under a lot of pressure to recruit others is a bad thing. I can't think of one thing in life where you're under a lot of pressure to bring others to what you're doing to where it's a positive, healthy thing to be involved with. I can't think of one example like that. So even if you think you need help, you don't need Choice Center. Go to a licensed professional who can help you. And you'll spend a lot less money doing it. And you won't be pressured after that to bring this person to other customers. It's just not how reputable self-help professionals work. They don't pressure you to bring them other customers. You have to wonder why that's a big part of Choice Center. It amazes me sometimes how players who are so good and so logical at making decisions at the poker table, people who can assess tells of people at the table, people who can assess situations perfectly, people who could logically break down hand after hand after hand and just make amazingly accurate decisions make such poor decisions when it comes to their own life outside of poker. It's funny how some people can be so smart in one aspect of life and so stupid in others. 
So I would stay away from Choice Center. It's not a full-on cult, but it's definitely not a good thing. Even if you can get some good from it, overall it's not a good thing. Well, someone who probably thinks that he found a good thing is Daniel Svetkov, the former head of the Intabil payment processing company. He got busted a while back. Uh, Basically, it was a young guy who eventually was processing all of the payments, or most of the payments, for Poker Stars Full Tilt and Absolute Poker. This guy was making a fortune. An absolute fortune. But being young and irresponsible, he also spent money like it was going out of style. He spent money that would put NBA athletes to shame. MC Hammer was probably jealous of Daniel Svetkov's spending. Daniel Svetkov spent money faster than it came in. No matter how much was coming in, he spent more. Well, eventually, Daniel resorted to stealing. Eventually, he was taking money from poker stars in full tilt and not actually sending out the payments that he was supposed to be sending. And eventually, he stole about $100 million from them. So, poker stars in full tilt were kind of in a funny situation. They hired someone, in this case Daniel, to illegally process payments for American customers. So, what do they do? Can they go to the police and say, hey, we're an illegal industry, we're illegally operating in the U.S., and one of the people we hired to make payments illegally stiffed us and stole our money. And they realized that um, they'd get laughed out of the FBI's office if they tried that. And in fact, if they tried it in person, they'd get arrested. So they did the next best thing. They passed on an anonymous report, so the story goes, to the powers that be in the United States and gave all the necessary details so they can bust Daniel Tvetkov. Not for the theft of their money, but for the payment processing. They pretty much said, hey, hey, Department of Justice, do you want to bust a payment processor, a really big payment processor for online poker? Well, here he is. His name is Daniel Svetkov, and here's the proof he's been processing payments. They handed it to him, knowing that uh, he would get busted if he was dumb enough to come into the U.S., which he was, because he was very reckless. And he was busted in Las Vegas at the Encore Hotel. And that was that for Daniel. Except Daniel then turned the tables. Daniel said, hmm, you know, yeah, you guys got me. Yeah, I was processing payments, and uh, you've arrested me, but... How about instead of giving me a really long and stiff prison sentence, how about you put me in the witness protection program and I will rat out all the online poker sites I've been working with. So if you want to know about them, 
if you want info on them, if you want dirt on them, I'm the guy who knows it all. So he gave it up. And that led to Black Friday. And pretty soon, April 15, 2011, Poker Stars, Full Tilt, and Absolute Poker were shut down by the U.S. government. Thanks largely in part to help from Daniel Svetkov, who became an informant. So the question became, at that point, what would happen to Daniel Svetkov? Because on one hand, he was busted for processing over a billion dollars in illegal payments for these online poker sites, but on the other hand, he provided valuable information to the government to bust these poker sites that were the bigger fish than he was. So what happened? Well, what ended up happening, it looks like, he's going to get very little time in jail. Now, he was arrested in April of 2010. He served four months in prison, at which point he officially cooperated with the federal investigators. He was released. He was in the witness protection program. And Black Friday occurred. But what was still up in the air would be what would finally happen to Daniel Svetkov. How much time would he serve after that, now that he has helped the government bust the poker sites? Well, Daniel Svetkov's attorney, Robert M. Goldstein, has asked the presiding judge in the case, Louis Kaplan, to go lenient on Daniel because he has cooperated so much, and instead of giving him a 6-12 to month sentence, which is pretty damn short already for how much this guy processed in payments, that they should just consider the four months that he's already served in prison time served and not give him any more prison time. Now, this has not been accepted yet, but there's a good chance it will be. So can you believe that? Svetkov, who probably still has plenty of money, I don't know how much he has left, but he probably still has some money hidden somewhere. I guess it's possibly blue at all, but Svetkov looks like he may not serve any more time in prison after those four months he spent in 2010. And even if not, he'll only get a few more months. Pretty good for someone who was the main payment processor of U.S. payments after the UIGEA was passed for the three big poker sites. So for him, snitching definitely paid off. Boy, did he get off easy. Can you imagine... If you were Svetkov, which really you could have been, it wasn't that hard to start payment processing if you were willing to take the risk. You didn't have to know that much to do it. It was just a big risk to be doing. Can you imagine becoming one of the biggest payment processors? And if you hadn't blown your money like Svetkov did, if you had actually hidden it away somewhere, 
that you could just spend a few months in prison, cooperate against the online poker sites, and walk away scot-free and walk away a super rich man? Can you imagine? So, we know that Chad Ellie, who we've had on this show before, and I know who listens to this show pretty regularly, uh, he got five months in prison. And there's some rumors that Chad Ellie has money hidden away. I don't know if he does or not. He denied that he did when he was on this show, but who knows, he might. If he does, he's not going to admit it on this show. But Daniel Svetkov did really the more payment processing than anyone and stole $100 million and turned in all the poker sites Looks like four months in prison total. Wow. Not a lot of justice here. And I know that some people are saying, hey, this was a victimless crime. Hey, we were playing online poker, so how can we say Daniel Svetkov shouldn't be getting prison time? Well, I, he was blatantly breaking the law. We weren't breaking the law by playing poker. We were not breaking the law by playing online poker. It wasn't illegal to play, but he was breaking the law and making huge money because he was one of the few willing to blatantly break the law like that. I could have processed payments like he did. It's not that hard to do. I could have quickly learned how to do it and done it. I could have found plenty of sites, maybe even the big ones, to work with me. But I didn't because I didn't want to go to prison. That's why most of you didn't do it. That's why probably all of you didn't do it, except for Chad Ellie, who might be listening. So when you take that chance, when you blatantly do something really illegal that can make you a ton of money, while everybody else doesn't because it's illegal, then yes, you deserve the penalty when you get caught doing it. You're taking the chance that you won't get caught, but if you do... You should pay the penalty, otherwise it's it's pretty much a free roll for you. Otherwise, why even have laws? And besides, the guy stole a hundred million bucks. So even if you want to say, hey, he was only processing payments, I you know, I support that. Well, he also stole a hundred million dollars of, of money that was supposed to go to the players. So uh Beer and poker saying in chat, he was a rat. I wouldn't be surprised if the guy needs protection his entire life. I don't think so. I mean, who's going to go after him? The absolute poker guys are hiding away. Full tilt. They were thieves themselves. And I, I just don't see the former full tilt owners hiring people to beat up or kill Daniel. I, I just don't see... Chris Ferguson or Howard Letter are doing that. Uh, poker stars, I mean, if they wanted to hurt the guy, they could have done it instead of just reporting him to the feds. They were they reported him. That was their way of revenge against him for stealing from them. And I don't blame them for that. I don't even think poker stars or full tilt then could be described as snitches. Uh, they just knew that was the only way to bring this guy to justice after he stole from them because they knew that the feds wouldn't care about him stealing from them as they were illegal to begin with. Their mistake, of course, was reporting him in that he could go report back on them, which is what he did. That was their big blunder. 
So, Shiz Money says in chat, ratting to the feds always pays. If it didn't, no one would do it. The government got their money. I mean, that's true. Government did get their money. So that's what's happening with Daniel Svetkov. Pretty outrageous. That's all the time he's getting in prison, given everything he did. Uh, Going from illegal online poker to legal online poker. The LA Times is predicting in an article that the current session where legalized online poker is being discussed for the state of California will likely result in some sort of bill passing that makes California online poker legal. Looks like it's going the right direction. This is an article by Michael Hildzik. And he writes at the end of the article, the expectations in Indian country appear that an internet poker bill will pass this session. If you're inclined to bet, and if you're interested in online poker, you just might be, the odds are that the bad actor provision will be dropped and poker stars will start putting distance between itself and the Scheinberg. So what he's saying here is it's looking like that it's a good chance in this session that they will pass some sort of internet poker legalization bill for the state of California. And that while the big obstacle right now is figuring out whether or not poker stars will be allowed, if there's a, quote, bad actor clause in there, they won't be allowed because they were breaking the law between 2006 and 2011. Uh, If there is no bad actor clause, then they will be allowed. And the tribes are kind of split on this one at the moment, depending upon who has a partnership with poker stars and who doesn't. But uh, he's also guessing that a bill will be passed and it'll be one without the bad actor provision and poker stars will be part of the legalized California environment. And at that point, poker stars will quickly uh, get the Scheinbergs who currently own it out of the business so they can get licensed. That's all speculation on the part of uh, the author here. But the most important thing is that this author believes according to who he's spoken to in the Indian gaming community, that they are going to get this passed this year. You won't be playing online poker in California this year, but you might be playing it next year. It will take time to write regulations and license sites and everything like that. So it's probably at least a year away, but we might be seeing it soon. And once California allows it, and California really seems to be headed in that direction, uh, then I think most of the rest of the country will follow. So, should be an interesting time in California. I think the games will be really good, at least for a while. I think once that goes up, I think there will be a lot of juicy games to play. California has about one-ninth of the country's population and also has a population that just in general has an interest in poker more than the average person in the country. If you looked on poker stars in the past, you saw a lot of California players. So, it's huge. California is the key, whether you live there or not. If you live there, it's really huge. And I bet California will get a lot of online poker transplants moving there if it becomes legal. I think uh, that's where everyone's going to want to come to play online poker. It'll be better than any of the other rooms. In fact, they probably won't even have to partner with any other states for a while 
because they just have such a huge population of over 30 million. So something to watch for sure. And I will keep updating you guys on this broadcast regarding that situation. So, before I get to my editorial, I just wanted to uh, note that I have Poker Fraud Alert hats and shirts in development. I haven't settled on the shirts yet, exactly what type of shirts I'm going to order, if it'll be t-shirts or golf shirts or whatever, but uh, uh, I have the design that's going to be on the hats and the shirts. I did solicit help in designing these on a thread on Poker Fraud Alert, and we got some pretty decent submissions, but I I had someone who does this professionally give me something that he thought that would be best, and I agreed that it was uh, the best thing that was presented, so I went with that. And I, I do thank for any... I thank everybody who did come up with their own designs. And I almost used some of them, but... Uh, Ended up going with someone who actually does this for a living. And as I said earlier in the broadcast, I'm not going to charge anyone for these hats. I'm not going to charge anyone for these shirts, even though I will be paying real money out of my pocket to get them made. It's just a thank you I will give to the community in distributing these. And I, I don't expect it to make me money down the road. I don't expect it to bring advertising here. I don't expect it to bring a large number of users. I mean, I, I'm realistic here. But... I just think it would be cool to have. And hopefully I'll have them done sometime very soon so we can already be wearing some during the World Series. Let me take a look at the chat room. If you want to call in 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Someone's saying they won the free roll, by the way, and uh, want me to roll it to next week. Please PM that to me. Please PM Dan Space Druff if you won the free roll and want to uh, roll it over, and I appreciate that. I just need something so I remember to do it. And uh, here are some texts I got. How about Granke last night? Yeah, you know, Zach Granke has been great for the Dodgers. He's 8-1. and one. Uh, The Dodgers have wasted a lot of money since their new ownership took over. They, they really overspent on a lot of players. They really just shot off money where they didn't need to. But Zach Greinke was not one of those over-expenditures. They paid a lot of money for him, but he's really been worth it so far. He's really just pitched great for them. They have an amazingly good record when he pitches. His personal record is great for the Dodgers, and the Dodgers' record when he pitches, whether he wins or not, personally, is great. And, I mean, the guy went like 22 straight starts where he didn't give up more than two runs. Can you imagine? 22 straight starts, not more than two runs. So, the only thing I'm seeing with Zach Greinke that I don't like is that once he gets tired, he really goes into the toilet. If you take out the later innings from his starts, his ERA would be much, much lower. He tends to give up home runs late in the game. 
Once he just doesn't seem to have it anymore, it just seems like a home run follows. A bunch of doubles and base hits follow. He just, once he is losing it, you got to get him out of the game. And it's very hard when he's been dominating so much, but then the seventh inning he gives up two straight singles. But you see that, you get him out. And uh, Mattingly hasn't been doing that, and that's kind of hurt his ERA, but he's been winning the games anyway because he's been good at getting uh, good run support. So, so far that hasn't really hurt him as far as the Dodgers winning. It just kind of hurt his stats. Uh, this message from the 616 area code. Do you ever foresee getting the gang back together, Mike on Brandon and Neverwin? P.S. Is Neverwin still alive? Yeah, Neverwin's still alive and uh, living in the Chicago area. Wouldn't be surprised if I saw him at the World Series. And you know, me and Neverwin are still on good terms. Uh, I, I don't agree with everything he did over the years, especially in his drug years where he borrowed money and never paid it back to people. But, uh, you know, me and Hever never had any personal fallings out. And, you know, if I see him, I'll definitely be friendly to him. Maybe we'll even have him on the show at some point. Um, Brandon, you know, whenever he wants to come back, he can. I just talked to him today, in fact. Didn't talk about this show, but talked to him a little bit today. And uh, Mikon, you guys know. I, that's done. Uh, I'm never going to be friends with Mikon again. I'm never going to be doing shows with Mikon again. Uh, that friendship is forever ruined. And that's just the way it is. And I'm sure most of you have people like that that were in your life and no longer are and never will be again. And that's just the way it is. I know, I know some of you like us together on the radio and, and wish that the old shows could return, but you know, things change over time, and that's just never coming back. And if you asked him, he'd say this exact same thing. Uh... That's it for the text right now. Let me do my editorial, and then we'll be done with the show, and uh, hopefully next week I'll have some good news to report for, or in regards to my play at the World Series. Being asked in the chat, Druff over under $2 billion for the Clippers. I, I think under, but who knows. I can't predict these sports franchise sales these days. They always just blow my mind. But I have to say, Ender. The Clippers look like they're more valuable than they are right now because the Lakers are struggling and because the Clippers have a few good players that are making them a lot better than they ever were. But you see, they, they still didn't make it to the conference uh, finals. And... I think they're still far behind a team like Oklahoma City, a team like Sacramento, not Sacramento, San Antonio, teams like Miami. So, I'm seeing CNN reported five groups bidding on the Clippers a two billion offer. Okay, Donald Sterling will make out pretty well. Donald Sterling uh, 
made a lot of money over the years by just fielding crappy Clippers teams and just counting on people coming anyway because L.A. is a big city that likes basketball. He was a terrible owner. Anyway, let me do my uh, editorial here, then we're done. This editorial is not about poker. It's not about gambling. It's not about Las Vegas. It's not even about politics. It's not about sports. It's about the tragedy that occurred at UC Santa Barbara over this past week where a young man named Elliot Roger opened fire on people in the college town of Isla Vista, which is uh, the college town for UC Santa Barbara in California. After stabbing his two roommates to death and also one of the roommate's friends who was over there sleeping. This is all planned. This wasn't spontaneous. He made videos talking about why he was going to do it. He wrote a 140-page manifesto about uh, how he hated his life and why he wants to harm people. Unlike a lot of other crazy spree killers, we actually know the reason he did it. A lot of the other killers we've had recently, they just opened fire in a movie theater, opened fire in elementary school, and you can't quite figure out what made them do it. You know, forget about agreeing with whether they did it, you know, why they did it. You know, nobody agrees with this sort of thing, but you don't even understand it. You don't know their motivation at all. Well, with him, you know the motivation. He made it very clear. His motivation was that he felt rejected. Mostly by girls, he felt rejected. He was a virgin. He never kissed a girl. He never went on a date. He felt that every girl would, uh, you know, either has mocked him when he's tried to talk to them or would mock him. It looked like he didn't even try very much to ask girls out, just figuring they would reject him, which they probably would have because uh, he was very strange, as evidenced by what he eventually did. But uh, he was very resentful about that. He had a strong desire to be with beautiful women and faced the reality that this would never happen. He even tried wild things like uh, driving all the way to Arizona, hundreds of miles away, just to play the... Powerball lottery or the Mega Millions lottery and, and hope he wins $100 million. He thought it was his destiny to win that and then that would get him the pretty women. And then when he, he couldn't win the lottery, then he got even more enraged. Feeling helpless that he would never get the beautiful women he desired and feeling resentful towards the good-looking men that he saw around getting the women that he wanted. So he hated both the guys getting the women he wanted and the women themselves for not being with him. His, most of his hatred was towards the women, but also it was against the, the men who were getting the women he wanted. And then he had separate hatred for his roommate, so he just didn't get along with, and uh, his younger brother, who was only like six years old, because he, he saw signs that his younger brother was going to be more successful in life than he was, and uh, he, he didn't want to see that happen. So uh, he planned to kill his six-year-old, either half-brother or stepbrother, 
and kill his stepmother. And the only slight bit of compassion he showed was that uh, he wanted to do it when his father wasn't around because he, he wasn't sure if he could bring himself to kill his dad. I guess he loved his dad enough. Even though he criticized his dad a lot, he, he loved him enough to where he wasn't sure if he could kill him. But uh, uh, anyway, Obviously very crazy guy. Obviously the guy had severe problems. He actually was a forum poster. He posted on the bodybuilding forums and people thought his statements were so odd They a lot of them accused him of trolling. They thought he was just joking with, with uh, how he would put himself down there. He, he made videos all the time saying, I'm pathetic, I'm a loser, um, yeah, my life is miserable, this world is so beautiful, but uh, um, it's so disgusting that I can't... Uh, succeed in it or he would say things that he's magnificent and nobody realizes it so it was kind of weird he was kind of like a combination of narcissism but also extreme low self-esteem at the same time and uh, I, I didn't read the whole manifesto I, I just read the parts of it that people picked out that were most important uh but I read enough and I watched enough of him to understand him. Uh, and when I say understand him, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I agree with what he did or even think it's uh, even slightly justifiable. But by understand is the same way I understand bad players at the poker table in that I, I can put myself in their shoes and think like them. And the reason I think it was easier for me to understand him is because I was there in the exact environment that he was that pissed him off. I was there, albeit 20 years earlier. In the early 1990s, starting with 1990 itself, I went to UCSB. I was there for three years. I graduated from that school. I have a degree from there. I was there from ages 18 through 21. And UCSB has a reputation as a party school. UCSB has a reputation as a place that it's really easy to get laid by beautiful women. That if you go there that uh, with very little effort, you can have sex with a lot of pretty girls, even if you're not that great yourself. Well, I can tell you that um, that's not quite accurate. Because I, I saw it myself. I experienced UCSB and Isla Vista, the college. I experienced all that myself for three years. And what I noticed there at UCSB was that, yes, there were a lot of beautiful women around. Yes, a lot of them were easy, but a lot of the easy ones are kind of part of the Greek system, part of the sorority system there. So if you're part of the Greek system yourself, then yeah, it probably is very easy to get laid. If you're 
going to all the frat parties and the sorority party, if you're going into that environment, there are a lot of easy women, and you probably will get laid a lot, even if you're not that good-looking or that charming yourself. But if you're not, then it actually wasn't nearly as easy as it's portrayed by people who talk about that school. Because there's a lot of really, really shallow and stuck-up girls that go there. And, uh, you know, I noticed that myself 20 years ago, and I assume today is probably the same. Because, you know, reading what he wrote about the environment there, uh, seeing his videos, even though the guy was completely nuts, and even though I completely understand why people want to stay away from him, because he probably came off as a, a weirdo, and people were put off by him, and I don't blame them. Uh, I can understand how someone who is sort of different like him, or very different, especially in a place like that with a lot of really shallow women, will find it very difficult to find love, companionship, or sex. Especially if you're not part of the Greek environment there, the fraternities and sororities, where a lot of the easy sex occurs. Now, as being pointed out in the chat room, he wasn't approaching these girls and trying very much. He was just assuming he would fail and not trying and then getting mad. But, but in his defense on that one, he probably would have gotten rejected because he was strange. Uh, even though he wasn't a bad-looking guy, he was, he was short and, and, and skinny, but uh, uh, you know he wasn't an ugly guy. But he was very strange, and that came out. And um, he even had some effeminate mannerisms to him. Some people are saying he was gay. I don't think he was gay, because if he was gay, I don't think it would have bothered him to this extent that he couldn't get women. Uh, I think he was just one, a, an effeminate straight guy. But whatever. Uh, I think he would not have been successful if he had tried to get women. I, I think he just, uh, his weirdness would have put them off. Now, I knew people that weren't too different than Elliot Roger. I knew one guy very well at UCSB. It was someone I actually spent a lot of time with that constantly complained to me that he hated the fact the women were so shallow and stuck up he hated the guys that these women were dating, that they were all stupid, they were drunk, they were losers, they were obnoxious, that he was better than they were. He didn't understand why the women wouldn't give him a chance. Uh, he complained to me about you know how much he resented both these women. I mean, it's very similar to like what I was reading in this manifesto. The difference was this guy that I'm talking about was not violent. I lost touch with him. Me and him had a falling out eventually uh, uh, towards the end of college and stopped being friends. But last I had heard, you know, he hasn't gotten any kind of trouble and I never saw him as someone who could be violent. But the stuff that Elliot Roger wrote and said 
was incredibly similar to what this friend of mine was saying. And no, it's not Ken Scaler, who, by the way, was at UCSB also, and also was frustrated with the inability to get women. But again, Ken Scaler's not violent. But uh, it's not a good place to be if you're a guy who's on the weird side or unattractive and it's important to you to get women. It's just not a good environment for that. There's, there's too many shallow girls that won't give you a chance there. And you will constantly see in your face, as Elliot Rogers saw there, a lot of beautiful women right, walking right in front of you with other dudes, and it's going to piss you off if you're someone who's not getting women yourself and it's important to you. Now, when I was at UCSB, you might wonder, well, what was my situation? You might even think, that guy I was describing, was that really me? No, it wasn't me. It was really someone else. But um, whenever I experienced frustration with the women at UCSB, I I had other places where I was... uh, meeting girls. Most of the time I was at UCSB, I either had a girlfriend or was dating someone, so I I wasn't struggling in that department during that time of my life. But uh, I I can see, I, I knew people who were, and I can see how it can happen very easily at a place like that, where I think if you went to a different school with a different environment with fewer shallow girls... with less of a partying atmosphere, I I think that he wouldn't have gotten as pissed off. He may not have had a girlfriend still. He may have still driven them all away, but at least he wouldn't have seen it constantly in his face with just tons and tons of beautiful women walking in front of him that are with other guys that won't give him a chance. And that's what made him snap. I'm not justifying it. I'm saying it was the wrong place for him. I'm saying if you're a parent and your kid has some similarities to Elliot Roger, even without the violence, you don't send him to a place like UCSB. You send him to a quieter environment. I can totally see how something like this would happen at that particular school. I can easily see that. And I went to grad school at a different place, and I saw very quickly the difference. Very different environment. So that was just the wrong place for him. It was like uh, you have a powder keg and you uh, drop it in a place with burning matches and then hope there's no explosion. And you can't be surprised when there is one. So that part isn't really being discussed in the media about how maybe the environment of UCSB just wasn't the right place for him. Not that it can be blamed, but just that he was totally the wrong fit there. And I believe that, you know there was another killer at UCSB, a guy who ran people down in the streets 
about 10 years ago. And I think he also did it because girls were rejecting him. Except with him, you didn't have the videos, you didn't have the manifesto, and you didn't have the super clear reasoning that this guy gave. So the one from 10 years ago didn't get as much press. There's been talk about gun control and that it's the fault of the gun industry. No, it's not. The only way to prevent this from the gun standpoint would be to prevent citizens from purchasing firearms. And you can't do that in this country at this point. Now, maybe if you could go back in time before firearms became uh, widely owned in this country, then you could maybe make an effective gun control law. But at this point, if you were to outlaw firearms, then all that's going to happen is the law-abiding citizens will have uh, no firearms to defend themselves, and the criminals will still have them. Gun control laws would not have helped the situation. He didn't have a criminal record. There wasn't any kind of uh, strong psychological history that this guy had to prevent him from getting it. I know he was uh, diagnosed with high-functioning Asperger's, but uh, uh, that is not a condition which has been shown to be making a person more dangerous. Uh, Concealed carry would not have prevented this because uh, this all happened too quickly. He killed three people in their sleep, shot two people from a car, and ran down someone before killing himself. I mean, he's a, uh, it's not like he was running around forever shooting people. If people had guns, this would have ended the same way. So, other than full gun control, you really can't stop this. It's not even like he uh, had an assault rifle or something. He just uh, bought some guns and used them. He only shot two people. Jeez. Phil Ivey just doubled up. He's fifth in chips now. I'm going to be so pissed off if he wins this somehow. The bet's over before it even starts. What a joke. He just keeps hitting two outers and lucky crap like that. Well, I hope you got a little bit of a different perspective here from a an old UCSB insider. And we'll be back next week. Six days, probably. I will have already played two World Series events. If I'm here, actually, on uh, Tuesday which is June 3rd. That will mean I am already out of the second event I'm playing, which won't be good news, but it can easily happen. So if I make day two, 
of the event I'm playing on June 2nd, this radio show will be delayed again. Otherwise, expect the show on June 3rd at 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time. I'd like to thank everybody who listened to the show. I'd like to thank the people who donated money for this $100 free roll tonight. Always appreciate that. Poker Fraud Alert has given away more money in our free rolls than any poker radio show or podcast in the world. It's the truth. 2014 World Series of Poker has begun. I hope for Phil Ivey it's going to end pretty damn soon. And I hope for myself that I can have some deep runs and have a World Series that I can be proud of. I have not had a year yet where I have bricked completely. I've cashed once at least every single year. But it could end. You know, I'm not playing that many events, so I, I guess I could go 0 for 8, 0 for 9, whatever. Hope it doesn't happen. I have another streak of which it hasn't yielded very much. Four straight years now, I have outlasted at least 83% of the field at the main event. But I've only cashed once out of those four years. Pretty bad. So that last 83% four years in a row and get one cash out of it. Well, that's it. I'm going to get myself ready for the Millionaire Maker on Saturday at 11 a.m. Start following my Twitter at Todd Wittellis for all the updates there. Say hello if you see me. You'll hear from me next week. Good night. Shalom. Shalom.